So Dale, I don't know how much you know about therapy, but it usually starts by you telling me a little something about yourself. I work at a college as a janitor, even though I feel like I'm smarter than most of the people that go there. Sometimes I see an equation written on a blackboard, like half an equation, and I'll just figure it out. Is this Goodwill Hunting? No. It sounds a lot like the plot of Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. Anyway, my best friend is Ben Affleck. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash contrarianprime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Ovnio for Julio. That's O V N I O. Now, time for the podcast. Oh, right. I am recording for Contrarian's Corner for Good Will Hunting. Good, comma, Will Hunting. It's uh, it's a very misleading name. I, I thought it was for lo- Hunting for Goodwill. <laughs> Me too. Hunting for Goodwill. And then, of course, growing up in the, the 90s, especially in the time period I did, I always think of Friends when this movie comes up because the uh, Joey and Rachel are talking about the porn parody called Goodwill Humping. <laughs> that That's always something that immediately sparks when I hear about this movie. But uh, if you couldn't already tell by that 30 seconds of jesting, uh, we're here today to talk about Goodwill Hunting, the 1997 Academy Award winner. Hello, and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex. I am joined, as always, by my friend and cohort, Julio. Julio, we're already, Jesus, we're over a week into December. The year of our Lord, 2020, or I guess the year of Satan, 2020, is nearly at an end, but we're... Uh, Don't jinx us. We're ringing in. Don't jinx us. I was about to say, we're coming close to closing out the year, and in the month of December, we're starting with... Uh, this banger of a of a film, ninety eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes. We're 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 going strong here. Ninety eight percent. It's it's pretty crazy. I didn't realize it was that high. I think that last time I watched it, I wasn't even aware of Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, it certainly was not a part of my life the way it is right now. So uh, when I looked it up, I was looking <laughs> up the quotes uh, last night. It just blew me away. Do you when you think of Goodwill Hunting, you think of uh, you know Damon and Affleck, and you think of Robin Williams, but you don't think. Oh, that movie that almost every critic loved. Yeah, and for some reason in my mind, too, I always associated this movie far more with the 98-99 era of film. The only reason that makes a huge difference in the fact that it's only like you know like one or two years off is um, this came out the same year as Titanic, which obviously just killed everything else dead in the water, no pun intended. So the just going back through this and realizing it was from the same year as Titanic is... Uh, pretty impressive, and it, in some aspects, lit the critics on fire more so than Titanic. But 
we are not alone, Julio. We are joined today for you and me personally, Julio. This is a, a a name from the past, a friend of ours. You know, we always talk about working at the theater and someone who we met back in those days, but also a fellow member of the podcasting community. Uh, Julio, why don't you give him a proper introduction here? Proper introduction for David from Franchise Killer, which actually we plugged the show uh, before here, mm-hmm. uh, and now I guess this is just the next step. First, we plug you on the show, then we invite <laughs> you over. And we say, hey, what movie do you like so we can talk trash about it on the first half of the of the show? <laughs> yeah. And then I followed up with, let me just name one of my favorite movies so I can trash talk it all night. I have to, you got to <laughs> see both sides of it. And I, uh, I didn't think about that when you asked me. I was like, yeah, let's do that movie. Oh, man. Made research real fun. But see, that's the real, uh, that's a trial by fire. If the movie survives, you looking at it through those negative lenses, then it means that it's really good mm-hmm. and you really love it. So in a way, we did you a favor, David. But I guess, or it makes me an asshole. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Tell us a little bit uh, about Franchise Killer. Like I said, we plugged it uh, a few episodes ago, but, but go ahead and give us a full pitch. Tell people uh, what is it about. Yeah, uh, so Franchise Killer, it's a movie review podcast where me and some friends, we sit down and we review franchises or wannabe franchises. Uh, We go film by film and see where things went wrong or right. Um, We kind of just go through, you know, the the plot of the movie, see where it could have been better. Um, And then usually at the end, there's a little bit of box office uh, and kind of at the end of the franchise and it could be a single one but if we get to the end of like a a four or five run then we kind of break down what really happened to this so that's that's more or less what we're about yeah i've i like that you have your gimmick but it hasn't really stopped you from doing like single movies like you did not at all you did aragon uh a couple episodes ago (laughs) which is a movie i'm aware of but i'm not i've never watched it and uh but that was basically a a franchise non-starter. Like I know it as a series yeah. of books, and then I knew the movie came out, and and I was curious how you guys were going to address it, and it was just yep. very straightforward. There's a couple of those. <laughs> There's a couple of those we did, and funny enough, that was one that I think prompted some conversation with you because that is perfect for you guys to cover on some episode of what how you guys love it just so much. I, Alex, do you are you even aware of the dragon movie called Aragon? In a very vague sense, yes. It's not like I have some massive attachment to it, but I I know what movie you're talking about. Yeah. It's that guy from Lord of the Rings, right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, let's let's get into uh into Goodwill Hunting, Alex. What what do you have for us? Quickly, briefly, we got the franchise killer explanation. We'll give the contrarian's explanation in case there's anyone tuning in for the first time. Uh Julio is Robin Williams. Have we done a Robin Williams movie before? Aladdin. Oh yes, duh. That was the the focal point of real talk <laughs> about how pissed off he got about that movie. So, but this is him in the flesh. We've got Robin Williams with the beard, the glasses, the 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 gentle motioning. Everything's here. So, if this is your first time listening to Contrarians, which with a movie like this, it very well could be. Uh, here on the Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine, as we say find a movie uh, on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated. We typically shoot for about 85, 90% and above. Uh, a lot of those movies are called Certified Fresh, and we make a case for maybe why they shouldn't uh, be so highly regarded. On the opposite side of the coin, we find a movie, one of those nasty green splotches uh, known as Rotten. We shoot for about 30% and below, make a case for the positive merit in the film, being that uh, you can't get really too much higher than 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. There's just about 
two two points that you can go up from there. So here uh, on the first half of the podcast for Goodwill Hunting, we're going to be uh, talking about why maybe Goodwill Hunting, despite its two Oscars, uh, has a bit of an overinflated legacy. Uh, if you want to know how we really feel, myself, Julio, and David, uh, stick around to the second half of the podcast, uh, the appropriately titled Real Talk, and we will explain how we really feel this is, in real terms. This is where we potentially alienate David and anybody else <laughs> that, that truly likes Goodwill Hunting when we reveal that we actually hated it. Um, hey, I'm putting on my angry goggles. I'm ready to go. I got I got my beer. I'm angry. I'm in, I'm in Boston. I'm ready to go. This is actually the best case scenario because we know already that no matter what happens in Real Talk, at least one out of the three opinions will be positive, which means that, you know, fans of the movie will be okay. They, they won't absolutely hate this episode. But I have the, I have quotes, Alex. The prequel to The Departed? That's the that's what I came away from this. That's what and I'm the all I needed, to Titanic. All, all I was needing was Matt Damon to say, I am not going to be a fucking cop. That was all I was Are you I a cop? Cop, there you go. Are you a cop? I, I promised on Twitter uh, that I was not going to do Boston accent, so I'm glad that you guys are picking up the slack. I was thinking about doing the whole thing in a Boston accent, and then I realized I cannot do a Boston accent to save my life. I have several uh, lines of dialogue in my notes, uh, like when they're the batting cages. You're going to get charged. You're going to get charged. It was fucking self-parody at a point, but... Uh, before I throw it over to Julio to tell us what the critics were saying about this, December 5th of 1997, this movie was released. So uh, if you couldn't tell by the, the movie, its themes, its performances, and its fucking poster, it was definitely there to you know come in at award season and just wring out the necks of the critics and just suck in all the ju- the sweet juices of praise and uh, take those awards home with it. So it came out, you know, right at the the beginning in a lot of aspects of award season in 1997 uh, with a budget of $10 million, which uh, we'll talk to kind of the surprising nature of that in the second half of this podcast, but box office return of uh, over $220 million. This, um, I remember hearing about this movie as a little kid. I would have been 10 when this movie came out. So I just remember it being something adults were talking about. But at the time, since then, you know, with Rotten Tomatoes, the way they aggregate critical responses, Julio, what um, what were, have been, are critics saying about this? <laughs> uh you know, like you said, the way it works out, there's only, I think, two negative quotes in the entire Rotten Tomatoes uh archive uh, for Goodwill Hunting, and neither of those were particularly interesting or funny. So I just pulled a whole bunch of uh, of fresh ones, and we're just going to spread them through both halves of the show. Uh, starting with uh, Roxana Haddadi from RogerEber.com, who says, Goodwill Hunting is lyrically directed, efficiently written, side-splittingly funny, and quietly devastating. And now, this movie came out when Roger Ebert was still writing reviews, so this has to be a quote from a review that's either more recent or back when Roxana Haddadi was interning at RogerEbert.com. I think it, it paints a picture. I'm trying to think, 97? Yeah, RogerEbert.com probably would have existed in 97. Okay. Uh, I don't know. It would have been the AOL chat room or uh, keywords. That's a little bit before your time, David, but there weren't websites on AOL. It was keywords that you searched and would bring up these pages. Honestly, didn't know that. Richard Probes from TheIndependentCritic.com says, The film offers Robin Williams the chance to show his dramatic acting skills. Um, 
not the first time that Robin Williams has gone dramatic, obviously. Alex, have you seen any previous uh, heavy Robin Williams roles? Uh, previous to this, um, what what would have been the his heavy hitters before this? Because I can think of a few after that I've seen. Right. Uh, before, didn't he do that movie uh, uh, where his wife died and he went to the, the afterlife to rescue her? Is it uh, oh, What Dreams gosh. May Come? And then, of course, Awakenings with uh, Robert De Niro. Hey, don't forget I've not Hook. seen that one. <laughs> Hook, yes. <laughs> yes. That, the dramatic masterpiece. Wait, Flubber I mean, came there out are... the same year? Hey, he was covering all his bases. Dang, that's a, that's a change. I mean, there were some dramatic set pieces in Mrs. Doubtfire, let's not lie. <laughs> Although one of my favorites of his is Dead Poet Society, though. That is There you go. That's the... In a, in a similar vein to this movie, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the Robin Williams oh. performance everybody thought of before, you know, as, as a dramatic side before Good Will Hunting came along. Matt Damon and Ben Affleck watched that movie about a million times when making this script. Make no mistake about it. Robin Clifford from Reeling Reviews says, Affleck is on my long list for Academy Notice this year. Ben Affleck, out of everybody in this movie, she singled out Ben Affleck for an Academy Award. Uh, He was playing himself. (laughs) But I guess we didn't know that at the time. (laughs) We just, you know, he, he, he just broke in. And he just seems so genuine. Well, they both kind of seem like they were playing themselves. I know that Matt Damon's not really that much of a genius. Like, I mean, he might be. Who knows? But I don't think he was a uh, a prodigy like he was in this movie. Although they both, I, I mean, I, I the amount of curse words in this movie that they didn't realize were even there blows my mind. <laughs> ben Affleck, we were only six months away or maybe seven months from this movie from fucking Armageddon. So he he had yet to take Hollywood by storm. If he was uh, if he was gonna get nominated, it, it should have been for Armageddon back in the day. Yes, you know, just stretching those muscles. Uh, and finally, Scott Renshaw from Rec.Arts.Movies.Reviews says both believably brilliant and convincingly rough around the edges, Damon avoids the too common actor's trap of whitewashing his character's dark side. And to that I say there was. Other whitewashing going on in the movie. <laughs> There's a lot of other things happening in this movie that, looking back on it, um, doesn't translate over very well. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll we'll pounce on those as we go along. All right. Goodwill Hunting. Um, and we were talking about this before we started recording. This is my first viewing of this movie. Shockingly so. I know I po- pass myself off as this pompous film critic that knows all from time to time, but there are still these massive blind spots in my... Um, movie viewing so i know we mentioned that on a when we closed out previously julio but coming into this fresh i just bought this from youtube there you know there was uh, the streaming services i think it's on like hulu if you have stars but it's one of those premium subscription things so yeah. i just bought it through through youtube and watched on there and it was perfectly fine uh david do you own this uh, do you own a copy of this is that how you watch I- it actually own two copies of this movie by accident um so i could have lent you mine or just given it to you at this point but yeah i mean i i bought it for myself and then i guess um my wife's uh mom knew i liked this movie and got it for me uh for christmas i think one year so now i have two wonderful copies of this movie is it the same edition or or did you get different? it looks identical and they're both dvds so i don't even have a blu-ray version which is kind of sad although i don't know I don't think we're going to get a good 4K version of this movie anytime soon. You never know. They they yeah, have too. enough pool right now. 
uh, not like it matters in this kind of movie. Yeah, that's that's fair. When the the, the little skadoodle on YouTube came up and was like standard definition two ninety nine HD three ninety nine, I was like, well, you know, it's not the Expendables we're talking about here. I'll just go with the two ninety nine version. Julio, do you own this? Uh, no, but I I do have a Star subscription through Amazon, oh, so I was able fancy. to just just get there. It's not really that fancy, but um, <laughs> if you want more details, I actually used uh, uh, my Amazon Fire Stick to watch it on my old TV. So I could be in bed mm-hmm. while I was watching it because I wanted to be comfy while I uh, watch all the all the dramatics unfold. I knew there was gonna be a lot of crying on the screen, and just in case it translated into crying off screen, I wanted to be able to just cuddle myself. Uh, Did it? Uh, we shall we shall talk about <laughs> that real in talk. real talk. <laughs> the version on YouTube, the, at least the stand the standard def version I watched was clearly a film transfer. So I was pleased. I was happy with the way it looked. Um. And speaking of which, you know, being pleased and just taken to a cozy place. When this movie started with the the Miramax uh, studio signature that um, uh, There Will Be Blood starts with, and I'm pretty sure No Country for Old Men starts with too. And if, you know, longtime listeners of this podcast know how nostalgic I am about the year of film that was 2007. Uh, so that just like immediately took me to a happy place. And it didn't last long. Uh, we... we <laughs> We start off with these fucking kaleidoscope credits. Is there any reason I, for them? Like, I, I'm sorry, it, but is there is there any reason? That was the first thing watching it again. I was like, what? Is there any relevance to this? Do they pay it off at all? I'm no. trying to remember if like it comes in at any other point. Okay, in the movie. it does. It does one other time when he's talking to Sean about his his childhood, about his foster father coming up the stairs, and he's carrying something with him, and it goes kaleidoscopic for a split second. Artistic choice, I guess, but I. I was trying to figure out what the connection was. Maybe trauma. I don't know. It's Gus Van Sant kind of giving you a heads up. Hey, this is going to be an artsy one. Brace yourselves. But then, like, it's not even artsy from that point on. It's not, you know. we Not at all. We need to, we need to come up with someone besides Lars von Trier that we always go to as, like, a resident <laughs> artsy director. You know, there's no thematic choices that are made like that throughout it. It was basically... I think uh, Ben and Matt's capacity for artistic filmmaking went as far as the opening credits, and then they were like, yeah, and then we'll just do some shit after that. <laughs> then we just hang out. No, I think they're just uh, filming two people just walking around Boston, just doing their Boston. life. And as Julio mentioned, it is uh, Gus Van Zant that brought us to the dance from a directorial standpoint. And, of course, uh, Goodwill Hunting, written by uh, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. Uh, Gus Van Zant coming into this, what were his feature films? Drugstore Cowboy, To Die For. And, of course, he would follow it up with his true directorial masterpiece, the 1998 remake of Psycho starring Vince Vaughn. So he he was just kind of priming the pump here. I did audibly laugh at when the writing credit for Ben Affleck and Matt Damon comes up is when their two characters come into focus <laughs> on, uh, in the movie. I thought that was just... You know, I, I want to joke and be like, God, it's so egotistical and, you know, windbag nature of them. But I, then I was thinking about, like, God damn, if I wrote a movie and I starred in it, that's exactly how I would come into frame, too. So I can't fault them for that. I was just disappointed that they didn't credit him as Benjamin Affleck. I was really hoping that he was he was trying to establish his writing career separate <laughs> no, from his like Paul Stephen time, man. Just a child. <laughs> you know, they had to call him Ben. Benny. Benny Affleck. And Matthew. Yep. Oh, Damon. God. Matty. 
that would have been great if they did go by some ridiculous version of their own name. That was uh, David when we did um, Halloween Six. That's when Paul Rudd was still going by Paul Stephen Rudd. Oh. So the idea of like Ben Affleck and Matt Damon having ridiculous names <laughs> coming into it. I know but that I will three s- names is good, but it does not work for Paul Rudd. It actually <laughs> uh, made me cough not. a little bit. It did when I, I was talking about earlier, reading about this movie coming out in 97 and not remembering it that, that kind of eluding me. But then seeing Matt Damon's hairdo in this movie, that is the most 1997 haircut I have ever seen. So it, uh, as Eminem said, snapped back to reality. That was a sobering moment in this movie. I was going to say, did you guys hear about what happened with his hair and that and how everyone was telling him not to go for it and Matt Damon Looking back on, he's like, man, I was so into it back then. I was like, I'm doing this, frosted tips and everything. And he's like, well, I don't know why I did that. Everyone told me not to. And it didn't. I mean, I guess it works in a charming way looking back. Like, yep, yep, this is 1997. It's a time capsule, yeah. Yeah, but it's funny hearing him look back on it now. Fully believe that Matt Damon would look <laughs> hot no matter what he did with his hair. So, have you, you seen know, Ocean's he 12? Been- <laughs> I was going to say, he could be rocking full-on dreadlocks in this movie and still would just swoon. So the one thing I did not know about this movie coming into it, I knew about you know Ben and Matt and Robin Williams. I didn't realize Stellan Skarsgård was like the other leading man in this movie. So seeing him credited and pretty much right off the bat, we just go into Professor Gerald Lambeau. Kind of the role he was born to play because in like, you know, that European way, he just seems like kind of a cock. So the fact that he's <laughs> such an arrogant man in this movie, it, I think it kind of plays to his strengths just from an, uh, a, a visual vantage point. Yeah, but to me, see, that was the role William Hurt was born to play. And then when they couldn't get William Hurt, then they got Stellan Skarsgård. Was, because... was Hurt supposed to play that? No, but the, but he's he. It seems to me like he's channeling William mm. Hurt, like the the look, the 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 costuming, the just the, I could the totally asshole see attitude. That. The, the yeah, kind of then, slightly sexual undertones with the students. Right, exactly. It, it's like, why Why is he European then? Why couldn't he be American? I mean, this is taking place in the United States. Everybody else in the cast is American. I'm kind of confused, though, because I couldn't tell if he did or not. Is it he actually is trying to be European, or is it just he's failing at putting on an American accent? Oh, man, if he's actually trying to do an American accent, that is... I mean, I really made fun sad. of him watching it. Like, I was repeating his lines. I didn't realize now... I haven't seen it in a, in a few years, at least. But hearing him again and really focusing on it, I was like, oh, gosh, that's an interesting tone. Alex, I will defer to you. Is he is he trying to be American in this movie? I think he is. <laughs> uh, I think we've done movies like this before where the guy just has such a thick accent that's trying to be an American that they don't try to force it on him too hard. Just kind of do your own thing. <laughs> I do appreciate, though, the one immigrant on this show is the one arguing that an American <laughs> should have played the role. <laughs> Listen, you Europeans got... don't need the jobs. Uh, Hispanics, <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll come over and we'll They're take them. They're taking our germs. Let Stellan Skarsgård just, you know, do things in Denmark or... <laughs> Girl with the dragon's tattoo. There you go. I, I know him from uh, the Marvel Universe. I mean, he's mm. Natalie Portman's boss. <laughs> This is this still a long way from that, but still. I mean, I guess if you can't get William Hurt, then he will do. But it's not when you're when you have him next to Robin Williams and uh, Ben and Matt. He's just kind of I don't know, not a third wheel, but more like a, I don't know a wagon that you're dragging down the road. Not only that, it's kind of funny the way he pairs with Robin Williams, and I I didn't know if it was that he was tall or Robin Williams was short. But you see scenes where Robin Williams is up to like his chest. 
in the frame, <laughs> and I had to look it up. I think Robin Williams is actually just really short, but he they did not pair well together on screen as far as that goes. Because I think I think uh, Skarsgård is six foot three or something to Robin's five foot seven. Um, but man, what a what a difference! At, at no point though did I did I not think that Robin Williams could just beat the shit out of him if he wanted to. That <laughs> of was course like, not. Every time they got into their, their scuffles, I was like, man. <laughs> the genie's gonna fuck this dude up in a second. <laughs> yeah, and Stellan Skarsgård, I'd forgotten he's one of the members of the Marvel Cinematic Universe mm-hmm. at this point. I was just kind of looking at what he's done in the past few years. Uh, a long cry from the days of uh, Goodwill Hunting, but our titular character, Goodwill Hunting, <laughs> is a janitor at MIT. His basic story is he was a foster child. Uh, that has had kind of a rough upbringing, but he's clearly an intelligent man, reads lots of books, has a sharp wit. That's one way to put what it. What have you. <laughs> <laughs> has his uh, his crew of boys, Chucky, Billy, and Morgan. Having not been raised in Boston, I it's clear that these guys are just like telling a story from their childhood about this imaginary friend they had that was really smart. <laughs> and the, his friends, played by Ben Affleck, um, Casey Affleck, and of Dazed and Confused fame, Cole Hauser, who plays Billy, and he really does not have many lines to speak of in this movie. Similar to uh, Dazed and Confused. At least in Dazed and Confused, he has his one really dramatic set piece where he you know, tells the, the main character that he needs to get his shit together. And this, he's just... He's always kind of just smoking or drinking and occasionally has an off-the-cuff remark about you know the state of things going on. But... That's all to say that Matt Damon's character here, we quickly find out uh, because of the aforementioned Stellan Skarsgård and his, uh, what he is as a professor, he he has like a fucking chalkboard outside of his uh, classroom that he puts these equations on, and we see that uh, Matt Damon, the janitor, is able to solve these and creates this real dilemma, because it's the first like 30 minutes of the movie before they actually know it's Matt Damon, right? Yeah, well, it's it's at least thirty minutes before we we get to the real star, which is Robin Williams. So I would say maybe twenty minutes before they figure out that Matt Damon is the one that's been solving the equations, uh, which is like I guess you know these are the movies you can just it's it's all fantasy in a way you can just write about whatever you want and uh, still maybe maybe it's a reflection of my biases. But when I was we spent the first chunk of the movie seeing Matt Damon and his crew just being ruffians, right? They they're just cruising the the streets of South Boston, harassing women, beating up dudes, uh, drinking, just kind of being not being productive members of society. And then the big reveal is that underneath that that rough and tumble exterior, Matt Damon is actually a genius that solving these equations that were dumbfounding everybody in uh, Stellan Skarsgård's class. It it's it's almost a bridge too far for me to go through, and uh, and I still I manage. The problem is that the movie never never stops. I mean, this entire movie is two hours of telling us how awesome Matt Damon is. Yeah, honestly, that the whole thing with him solving these problems in the school, I, I thought was really cool at the time. And even as a kid, I'm like, he's just drawing lines with dots. How hard could this be? And I looked, I actually looked that up, uh, some of the problems he did. And I think there's a guy who's pretty big on YouTube that went over this tree problem that you know he had to do something like how many trees are there within this amount of vertices draw homomorphic homorphically reducible trees by n equals 10 or something like that and he's like it's actually you could just do it at home it's like something that's not even that hard 
<laughs> and they make it sound like, how did this man manage to do this? It's like, oh, he, he just kind of like sat there and looked at it for 10 minutes. I don't know. There's a deleted scene that shows him just Googling the answer and then just transcribing it on the on the chalkboard. Yeah, exactly. Back when he couldn't even afford a computer back then. I was going to say, he didn't Google it. He AOL keyword searched it. <laughs> and that's how, how it came up. I forgot to mention that uh, the selling point of Casey Affleck in this movie is he has like a, a mini fro yes. that uh, that I I was very familiar with when I was like fifteen or sixteen. My hair did not grow like it does now; it grew out and just very, uh, I guess, just white guy curls. And so I can very much appreciate Casey Affleck's hair in this movie because I was definitely uh, it was something I was familiar with. Julio, you mentioned the activities of this foursome, this yeah. group of ruffians. I, it may just be watching it now as an adult as opposed to being younger watching it, but I just balked and audibly kind of chortled at the the sight of Matt Damon with these guys because, you know, we cut from him solving this award-winning uh, level problem that you know no one's been able to solve for two years even people at the highest scholastic le- uh, scholastic level and then it cuts to him with his boys fucking drinking beers in brown paper bags at a little league baseball game <laughs> you got like, a problem with that i understand <laughs> no you got a problem i don't have a problem with either outside, thing <laughs> i don't have a problem with either side of that but when you mix them together it just becomes ridiculous i thought they at this point they were trying way too hard to establish that yeah, man. Normal guys can be wicked smart too. It was, it, it was a lot to digest. It's I just imagine the the incredibly tough standard it suddenly set for janitors everywhere. It just now it, it, you're expected that now every time that you walk by and you see somebody that's kind of unassuming, uh, you're like, oh, but secretly he must be a genius because of that Matt Damon movie. You know, people were thinking that at the time, like after this came out, they're like, wait, he was hired from his parole. Hmm. <laughs> this Hollywood bullshit of like, look, someone that looks like Matt Damon would never have to be a janitor. Like, the idea of someone that looks like that, you know, we've talked about this in previous movies we've done. Of If you're hot enough, especially, you know, in society from, like, 1980 on, if you're hot enough, you can play the system and not have to get a real job at any point. If you don't know who Stacey Keebler is, look up Stacey Keebler, because that's a perfect example of someone, if you're hot enough, you can just end up sitting front row at the Oscars next to George Clooney, <laughs> not having really done... A, real work in your life well but even with matt damon i was gonna say even even so even beyond that the fact that his backstory the backstory they've created for this character is that he was physically abused numerous times by by his uh foster father or even foster fathers and uh, i mean he's just so uh so lucky that all the scars and everything is just kind of from the neck down so he still looks like Matt Damon when really he should have been, you know, he should be missing teeth, have like some gnarly scar somewhere on his face. But instead, he still looks like a movie star. Nah, it's all it's all below the shirt. He should have looked like Dennis Hopper in Waterworld in this movie. <laughs> That's what he, he should have uh. been rocking as he was a, a, a janitor. It's classic Hollywood presentation that, man, 
this all-time attractive male is here, you know, cleaning up your puke. That that was like in Joe Dirt. That's a that's a proper portrayal of what a high school janitor would look like. Someone like Joe Dirt, and he is not intelligent like Matt Damon is in this movie. Man, can you imagine if Damon had put his ego aside and had just written the movie and then given it to David Spade? Oh, be like, here you go, man. You are you are the Will Hunting that's really going to sell this story. Will, like Julio mentioned, and his whole crew of friends are a bit violent. Um, Julio, we've talked about this before. Have you ever really been in something you would consider like a, a full-on fist fight in your adult years? Uh, that's the keyword, adult. AOL keyword, adult. Um, <laughs> I, no, not that I can think of. I and I, I'm pretty sure that the most recent fight that I had that considered, you know, considered as like something where people were getting hurt, uh, was definitely not on the level that people are getting hurt in this movie. <laughs> So no, no bleeding. Uh, I think somebody maybe headbutted me on the nose once, and that was it. That was a teenager. I mean, when I was like, I think the last like fight, people. Well, I'll circle back to this in just a moment. I think the last like quote unquote fight I got in was maybe fourteen or fifteen, when you're just raging fucking <laughs> hormones, and you and you one of your buddies start talking shit about video games or something that goes too far. Uh, David, in your adult years, would you have been anything that you considered a full-on fist fight? Uh, that's a trick question for me because I, I I tried my hand at boxing for a while. So, yes. Oh. But also, <laughs> uh, in the streets, nah, not even close. I'm like, I'm like I couldn't harm a fly. The gloves yeah. were never off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I was bad at it. Well, that's a sweet science. It's not just brawling in the street. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the reason I bring that up is just uh, watching this, it kind of just sparked my brain thinking about that. I, I was lucky when I was in college. I had uh, a friend of mine named Sam who was a, a very, very large man and a very intimidating looking man uh, in the sense that uh, he was a sweetheart. He wasn't violent at all, but basically it got me out of any fights I ever would have been in. But I do remember a couple times in college and a couple times since of people just trying to start shit. And uh, that was kind of this this movie, and especially in a town like this, and uh, there was a town I, I grew up in similar to this where these fucking white dudes just drive around looking for fights <laughs> to start. And so that immediately like compromised my thought on his intelligence level. That him and his boys are just rolling around, drinking and driving, looking for fights to start. I assume in an you know 2020, obviously the COVID world. I doubt there's people still riding around looking for fights, but I assume that still exists. But it just played out a bit too cliche in this to just make a point of look how dangerous this smart guy is. <laughs> He's just driving around looking for fights to start. It was a bit heavy handed. In 2020, he would just walk into the mall and take his mask off. That's how you start a fight in 2020. <laughs> Who wants some? <laughs> Who wants some? I did consider that that was one of the big failings of the movie because they tried so hard to paint him as somebody that's so smart. And yet, I, I understand that the idea is that he can't get himself out of his own way. But I, it, the decisions that he makes over and over throughout the movie are baffling when they, they're coming supposedly from somebody that's uh, genius level brain, right? So yeah, from the very beginning, I mean, he gets into this brawl that, that basically it just lands him in prison or in, in, lands him in jail. And mm -hmm. uh, I just, I, it was hard to buy it. It's like, is he smart or is he not smart? Figure it, it out, it, movie. All based on a childhood 
you know, fist fight he got with this guy a while back. Or I shouldn't say fist fight. I, I guess that guy picked on him or something when he was a kid. And he's like, there he is. Let's get him. I, I don't know, man. It, 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 did, it seemed like a stretch even for me. Will and his crew beat up these dudes that they find on the fucking basketball court. Cops come break it up. Uh, Will ends up assaulting one of the police officers. And, yeah, like Julio said, leads to him uh, getting arrested. He's awaiting trial in the interim. He solves another one of these mythical problems. And shows how smart he is. They end up going to Harvard. They go to visit the uh, the Harvard campus and go to a bar there, where I guess the idea is they're going to impress uh, the local girls. When a trope from the '90s reemerged, like a, a blinding light of brilliance that I had completely forgotten about that we need back, the pretentious bully. <laughs> so the whole idea is like Ben Affleck goes up to this girl and starts like, "Yeah, we had history together. You remember me?" And this guy comes up and he's got like his little Coke ponytail with the strand of hair hanging down. And he just kind of starts to try to sun him about, you know, his level of intelligence. And I had forgotten that was a big thing in like Disney movies or Disney Channel movies at that point in time. And that was huge in the 80s, late 80s and into the 90s. The the pretentious bully that would be mean to you about how dumb you were, which, of course, since then... (laughs) Rightly, the narrative has shifted of if you're smart, you're not a bad guy. None of them but were Tobolesque here, with him, though. <laughs> he, he really it's was. It's a hobo who found some like Argyle on the street. Yeah, and he didn't even have the look. He didn't have the Matt Damon or Leo haircut. So he clearly wasn't that smart. It was uh, it was a bit ahead of its time. And like 2006, maybe, if he had come up looking like that, but was wearing like a poncho and had no shoes on, it would have made a lot more sense. But the idea of the pretentious bully and how like mean he is to Ben Affleck here, I was like clapping at the screen. I was like, God, I missed this in movies. <laughs> but then Matt Damon comes up and uh, what would what would eventually or what did lay the groundwork for the eventual like um, old school where Will Ferrell in the debate, you know, just has that whole soliloquy memorized and just expunges it on the world and here you know matt damon's character will had clearly been preparing for this moment his entire you know <laughs> adolescence and teenage years he memorized this whole uh diatribe about cutting down someone for having the gall to have a college education <laughs> i wasn't able to look up the oscar scenes from uh 98 when this would have been in there but i assume this may have been well, there's the one big heavy scene later on, but this probably would have been uh, Matt Damon's Oscar clip from this movie. You think? I think it might have been uh, the guy playing the the well-educated bully. That was his Oscar <laughs> clip. It was it was submitted for your consideration, but they didn't quite pick it. Ponytail uh, guy from Goodwill Hunting. You've seen uh, James Helen Bob strike back, right, Alex? Unfortunately. Do you remember when they recreate this scene in in the movie? I don't know. They they walk in, Jay and Silent Bob walk into the set of uh, Goodwill Hunting 2. I think, I don't remember what the actual name of the sequel is, but it's basically uh, a recreation of this scene. Ben Affleck is there. Uh, I think Matt Damon is there too. I don't know. But this guy, ponytail bully guy, is there. They got oh, him back. Wow. <laughs> the exact actor? The exact actor. They didn't oh recast him. I am I am pretty sure it's, it's him. If not, they got somebody that looks a lot like him. Which, honestly, I think he looks like David Morse, like a young David Morse. But he's there. And I, I, I've always thought that that was great that they they went, that Kevin Smith went to uh, that level of detail to recreate what is kind of a nothing scene in this movie. Because <laughs> I mean, the only thing that really happens here is that uh, Matt Damon impresses the one female character in the movie. 
mini driver. Hey, there was a friend there. She had one line, okay? <laughs> there you go. And you will respect her. I don't like the movie. Was this the peak of the mini driver experiment? <laughs> no, no. 98, she did Tarzan. Did you guys hear about how she almost didn't get this role because she wasn't attractive enough? Oh, that sucks. I was just going to say her, her American accent sucks even worse than Skarsgård's. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if she was trying all that much on that one. You didn't you didn't hear the Harvard, the Harvard accent? <laughs> no, but they said that she wasn't attractive enough and I think I I don't know if it, who it was, but then uh, I think Matt Damon and Ben Affleck were like, "No, no, no, you got to trust us. She's good." And just reading that, it like I could feel like my skin just like bubbling up. I'm like, "What?" Yeah, sadly, that Miramax and everything, that sounds, uh, as we've covered on several episodes previously, that sounds like the ramblings and very sad commentary of the fucking Harvey Weinstein and uh, that crew. He was was Um, in the background just going, just like, no, 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 get her out of here. She won't take her her clothes off, so no, cast somebody else. That would Saw more Matt Damon than we saw her. (laughs) Uh, I just looked it up and No complaints. Uh, this guy, Scott William Winst- Winters, his name in uh, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back is Clark, and his name in Goodwill Hunting is Clark. Yes. So, confirmed. That guy has at least two uh, Goodwill Hunting related appearances. My God. Looks like the brother from fucking Titus. Um, <laughs> this ends with Matt Damon getting Minnie Driver's phone number. She is Skyler, her character's name in this movie. <laughs> Starts the the budding romance between the two, and uh, upon exit, uh, Casey Affleck to me gets uh, my favorite line he has of the movie: "My boy's wicked smart," and then goes out of the bar because we hadn't established already that this movie it it wasn't Boston enough coming up into this. I don't know if you were familiar with this, Alex. I guess it, it kind of took took the United States by storm for a little bit. The whole uh, how you like them apples. Yeah, uh, that's where I thing. was going to go next. <laughs> did you did you recognize it when it happened, Alex? Were you like, oh, so that's where it comes from, or did you do you just shrug? Because at this point, I mean, if you, I guess, without the context of how it became significant, again, it's just like a nothing moment. Uh, I just thought it was like an expression from my childhood. Like I just thought that was something people said. I didn't realize it came yep. from this movie. That's so. I, I had the same something. feeling because when I first watched it, I had that moment where I was wondering and I thought it was just an expression long before Goodwill Hunting and he was just using it. Nope, it came from Goodwill Hunting. So that's that's impressive. That's why they got the Oscar. Because yeah, they actually that changed line. pop culture <laughs> as we know it. I, I think that once again, though, g- going back to Mini Driver, uh, the movie bends over backwards to tell us how awesome Will Hunting slash Matt Damon is because he doesn't even have to ask for her number. Mini Driver comes over to him, tells him that she's been waiting for 45 minutes for him to make a move, and then tells him, you know what, here's my number, call me. He doesn't He doesn't have to do anything. He's so good. He's just, he's smart. Women come to him. He doesn't even have to try. Uh, if only he could stop uh, fighting people on the street. If only. A bridge too far. So, Professor Lambeau is looking for the man who solved his uh, equation. He saw him working on it back at school and tried to confront him about it, and Matt Damon ran off. Go fuck yourself. 
And so since then, he knew he was a janitor. So <laughs> there's this like ridiculously, um, there's no subtlety. So when he goes and visits, it's like where the janitors work. And, you know, they're in the doldrums in the fucking boiler room. It's the separation of the smart and the not smart is basically what the movie tries to establish. And Lambo's like, hey, this guy works in my building. I need to know who he is. The head of the janitorial department uh, basically says, you know, he didn't show up to work today. Here's his P.O.'s contact information. And Stellan Skarsgård's just like, P.O.? And then he reads the card like parole officer, and he has that face like he he does like that Hugh Grant. Oh, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> and he ends up at Will's hearing, and Will obviously very articulate, well spoken, very loquacious. Uh, explains, you know, this is you know it's a free country. This is why I've been allowed to do this. And the the judge reads down his rap sheet, and he's like, "You talked your way out of all this shit." not working with me you're gonna get locked up we spend about fucking 10 minutes in this movie maybe even 15 just to get to the fucking point that he's released back into society under the care of Stellan Skarsgård because he's like he's a genius I'm gonna help him he's gonna get counseling all this shit this leads to I would call it a montage but it's basically just a an expanded sequence of moments of him meeting with different counselors and belittling them and in some cases, emasculating them uh, because yeah, he I, can't be treated. I, I wrote montage and then I scratched it off because it's like two. <laughs> they, they, I think that Gus Van Sant didn't quite understand that you need to, this sequence either needs to be longer or not exist at all. You either get us Robin Williams right away or you have to give us at least five, I think, to consider. Exactly. To be considered a satisfying montage. Well, well, around the same time, is this around the same time where they are doing also the math problems on the board and he tussles his hair like a, <laughs> yes. a young schoolboy? <laughs> yes. Good job, Will. I knew you could do it. And this then you is... see the guy in the background just like, that was supposed to be me. Yes, <laughs> yes. That's, that guy is my favorite character. And also, <laughs> I just don't understand what they were going for because clearly they, they took the... They took it seriously. They put in the work to make his character. They, they give him moments throughout the entire movie, but it never pays off. It doesn't lead to anything. You just nothing. This constant reminder that there's a dude that I guess is Stellan Skarsgård's assistant, and that he is constantly looking at Matt Damon like, you know, I hate you. You're you're smart and you don't appreciate it. And uh, he's he's there waiting. He's like a. a you know, if, if Skarsgård is Mr. Burns, then this guy's his smithy. But, but it's a smithy that's always in the background. He never comes to, to shine. He never gets the one moment where he would, I don't know, have a heart-to-heart with either Matt Damon or Stellan Skarsgård or maybe even Ben Affleck, at least. He, he never gets to shine with anybody. He's always in the... Why would you put so much work on a background character that never Almost comes to the Almost irrelevant. He was one of the most irrelevant characters ever. He but he gets close-ups. <laughs> I know that's the point. Like if they they do nothing with him, he gets them coffee. He tells them that he's not you know appreciating what he's got, and then that's it, and he's gone and does nothing else. I know his name is Tom because they they call him by name a lot. Get us coffee, Tom. Well, okay. for one, just to make it clear, it's Smithers, Julio. Oh, that's right. Smithy is the uh, um, the Spider Slayer yes. in the Spider Man cartoon. 
Smithers. Uh, but yeah, as David mentioned, he like tussles his hair, and they have their own like fucking secret handshake that they've been doing because <laughs> they solve an equation, dude. Yeah, it's it was the first thing they did too. They never showed the montage. That was the only equation they did, and they're like doing that handshake and the hair tussle. I was like, Matt Damon should have punched him in the face if they're going to be realistic with this. Like, <laughs> that was embarrassing. It's clairvoyant. I do have the quote written down. The first um, uh, counselor he meets with, George Plimpton plays him, and he's, he tells him, no more ballyhoo uh, in referring to his <laughs> friends. And It was, yeah, just this this rambunctious nature. I was surprised he didn't accuse him of listening to the punk rock. Because that was basically the <laughs> insane, in-your-face, non-subtle version that they were going for. So, of course, all this leads to enter Robin Williams, who plays the role of Dr. Sean McGuire, who was a colleague, and I believe they even mentioned he was a roommate of uh, Professor Lambeau uh, previously. And Dr. McGuire is a man who is a professor, but he's also you know learned and has studied the counseling arts for many, many years. And he's also uh, an alone man. His wife had passed away. Did she... She got sick, right? That's the story. Yeah, he said cancer. Mm -hmm. Cancer. So he's kind of just alone to himself. And it's taken that Lambeau goes to him as a last ditch resort. He knows how talented and intelligent he is, but he's also a wild card. So we (laughs) got to bring him in here and see what can happen. So he brings him in to see if he can counsel Will. Uh, Their first encounter, this whole sequence, the first time they meet, Dr. McGuire, like, tells Lambo and his associate to leave. He's like, we're just going to talk here. This whole scene, Matt Damon is a kid that's had too much sugar. He like, it's not even like an ADD thing. It's not that it's literally just, he's been over caffeinated and he can't keep focus on one thing and keeps bouncing around the room like a fucking lunatic. It eventually leads to him questioning the woman that Dr. McGuire married. Yeah. Sean married. (laughs) And, so uh, I'll get to y'all's thoughts on this, but I just wanted to go ahead and get in how much I appreciated this, though. It doesn't belong in this movie. It, <laughs> it laid the groundwork for um, how creepy and meticulous Rob Williams could be that would later uh, prosper in One Hour Photo, which is a movie I absolutely love. Uh, but here, as soon as Matt Damon starts implying shit talk about McGuire's wife, he starts taking his glasses off and cleaning them very meticulously <laughs> like a hitman. Uh, and you know, cleans him off and then runs over just like ice cold and grabs him by the throat and premeditated. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Matt Damon, for as smart as he thinks he is, and as smart as this movie pays him off, Rob Williams could have fucking killed him in that moment if he wanted well, that was to. The and point. He wouldn't even see it coming. He needed to be his psychologist, right? Like <laughs> you you need somebody who can put that fear of God in him, right? Well, don't they say that uh they're from the same neighborhood, basically? Southie. Yeah, they're, they're both Southies, so that's that's really what what caused Damon to uh, eventually respect him. But I, well, I'm curious, Alex, because I knew what I was getting into. Uh, but to you, were you kind of disappointed that what we were getting here was uh, sad Robin Williams as opposed to manic Robin Williams? Because I imagine if you hear Robin Williams plays a psychologist that's going to tame this wild Mad Damon, then you think, oh, you know, it's gonna be like the genie. Like he's gonna be just like he's gonna entertain charismatic. him. Charismatic. Yeah. He's gonna just charm him into submission. But instead, 
Robin Williams spends most of this movie kind of moping around. Half the time, it feels like he's the one in therapy because he keeps talking about his dead wife and how he can't move on. And uh, Matt Damon's just sitting back, listening to him talk. <laughs> that's uh, uh, I understand that that's very progressive, uh, a very progressive way of treating what's ailing Matt Damon. But to me, it was kind of a bummer because I, when you say Robin Williams, I expect... You know, Robin Williams, the guy that does the stand-up, the guy that that did the genie. You know, Patch Adams. Hey man, Will Will helped him just as much as he helped Will. It was a symbiotic relationship. And in, in the end, the Will hunting was inside all of us. <laughs> I really hope not. Uh, I was gonna say, yeah, uh, I expect like Patch Adams. I expected him to have a clown nose on in this first scene when he met him, and you know, try to tickle him or some shit, but. It was. Uh, I'm glad I didn't see this. Throat. I'm glad I didn't see this movie when I was younger because it would have shattered my idea of what you know. For us '90s kids, Robin Williams was a a, a beacon of comedic uh, whimsy and wonder. So seeing him here, being half, you know, manic depressive kind of little bitch, and then also <laughs> like this stone cold aggressive man that. Clearly, it's never outlined in this movie, but he's he's clearly killed a man with his bare hands. That, that, that's what this movie tries to outline. He was in the war, man. Right. He was. He, and, and well, and I'm not even, I'm not proud to say this, but I did watch like an almost hour-long video of a psychologist breakdown of this entire scene uh, and, and also other scenes. But specifically this one, I, th- I find funny because... He was breaking down how Will was doing this because he was trying to divert attention and and Sean was doing this to get him back on track. And there's a lot of s- subtleties in what they were doing that was actually working. And at the very end, he goes, dear God, no, absolutely <laughs> not. He's like, you, I don't care what is happening. That does not happen. Do not assault your patient. Do not throw them into a wall with your hand on their throat. This, unless you want a, a blockbuster movie. And also a... a- far bygone era the even though this movie's 23 years old at this point it still seems like a different millennia well i guess technically it was but just seeing matt damon smoke indoors everywhere i was like good god what is this man doing he's going to be escorted from these premises wherever he goes Uh, but yeah he just lights up anywhere so this is kind of where we get a mini montage it's kicked off by Robin Williams meets with uh, Will in a park and just completely obliterates his entire being. He breaks him down and just explains, hey, yeah, you think you're cool? You're not, and this is why. Breaks him down brick by brick, completely strips him of his manhood, his dignity, and any ideas or thoughts that he thought he, you know, mattered. And then, you know, uh, Walking on Sunshine kicks in and we get our montage here of the movie. Yeah, this somehow kicks off Oh, we're going to see him treat him now. And it's basically several meetings they have where Will refuses to open up to him or have any any semblance of caring or wanting to share or do his part. But we also see in these clips that come by is that Sean, it, he'll wait. He doesn't give a fuck. He, he's got all the time <laughs> in the world to see what this guy's going to do. He's getting paid no matter what. He's getting paid by the hour, so he'll be there as long as they need him. The big Robin Williams 20-minute-long monologue that kicks off this this whole sequence, that has to have been his Oscar clip, right? There's no way that there's another one because he he basically tells the history of the world and the history of his relationship 
to Matt Damon and goes through all the emotions. And then he concludes with uh, your move, chief. And I think he keeps from then on. He calls him uh, he calls him chief for the rest of the movie. Is there another Oscar clip moment for Robin Williams? It, it, one that's as strong as this one? Ooh, maybe something from Dead Poet Society, but nothing after this. <laughs> <laughs> this is the, the ultimate Robin Williams Oscar clip. Like I said, Matt Damon. Maybe later on the scene where he finally breaks down would be one to consider. Ooh. But for uh, for Robin Williams, yeah. Because all his other like big acting moments are him just emoting to things going on. But this is, like I said, similar to when he takes his glasses off and chokes Matt Damon. It's so ice cold and meticulous how he does this. He doesn't raise his voice. He's just very calm and explains, this is why you're a little insignificant shit and you don't matter. <laughs> and delivers it just so matter-of-factly. It's chilling, I think, would be I the wonder- right word. I wonder what that psychologist that was breaking down the previous scene, David, I wonder what he would say about this one. Because it seems to me like he got, like Robin Williams got way too personal. You're not supposed to talk about that kind of stuff with your patients. Yeah. I did watch that one. I watched the, the three the three big ones, which was the choking scene, the bench scene in the park, and then the very last scene. Um, I I can barely remember that middle one. I think it was more along the lines of, that was pretty personal, but, you know, <laughs> these guys are both from Southie, man. So, you know what? <laughs> Bet's off. They do whatever they want at this point. He choked him, you know? <laughs> Once you choke him, then the, anything goes. Yeah, buy him dinner first next time. <laughs> <laughs> While all this is going on, uh, Will is falling for Skylar. He's let, uh, not letting his guard down, but he's clearly becoming attached to this girl. And uh, anyone who can you know, have the foresight of having ever seen a movie ever knows where this is going. His sessions with uh, Dr. McGuire continue. They finally kind of break and bond together over fart jokes, which is uh, kind of an interesting turn this movie chose to take as they talk about, or McGuire shares the stories of his wife used to fart when she was nervous or fart in her sleep. And they Share a good, hearty chuckle over fart jokes. Oh, Fun dude. fact, that was improvised. That was a Robin Williams improvisation. Oh, and well. it, and it, it got Matt Damon to laugh and the crew to laugh. And it, it did feel weird, because but that's why. <laughs> Damon is laughing like he has never heard a fart joke before. <laughs> Just that close-up of him laughing goes on for at least a minute. I bet it's because they literally, he did not, that was like, that's not the line. That's not the line at all. <laughs> I didn't write that. He was supposed oh, yeah. to talk he about how awesome I, I am. <laughs> you know what Matt Damon did write and Ben Affleck did write was they had to fucking shoehorn in Red Sox trivia into this movie <laughs> about the 1975 World Series. So uh, the character of Will and uh, Dr. McGuire bond over the initial fart jokes and then they bond over the retelling of the game six of the 1975 World Series, uh, where the whole idea is this is where McGuire explains where he met his wife and it was love at first sight. And he says, I got to, uh, he had a ticket to the game and he says, No, I have to stay with this girl. But the native Bostonians had to still get in the retelling of how the game went. And God, God help the uninitiated that came to this movie that did not care about or had no knowledge about the Boston Red Sox in the World Series of 1975. I understand it's meant to drive a plot device that later comes back up in the movie, but of course these two motherfuckers had to just, like I said, shoehorn, just pack 
pack in this uh, sports trivia about this is when we did it. This is when we made it. Classic Boston. Yeah, they could have gone with something a little more accessible to general audiences, not just Boston baseball fanatics, right? Because all you need is really uh, for Robin Williams to have had tickets to something important. That's that's <laughs> that's all you need. He could have had tickets to like The Empire Strikes Back. I don't well, know. <laughs> if you think about it, they should have chose something that was more relevant to everybody. Like that was something that people from Boston definitely would understand. They're like, ha ha, yeah, I got that. But everyone else, you know, globally watching this movie, are like, I, I don't care. Right, and it's not even like Robin Williams is not supposed to be from. Oh no, he is a Southie. Never mind. Because I was gonna say his accent, <laughs> his accent. <laughs> don't worry about it. Doesn't don't think really about it. resemble like what what you would think of when you think of a a baseball Boston fan. <laughs> and they even put some footage there of the game as if to get you excited. It's like I don't care. Uh, hey man, she- they even did a top-down view of his office, and everything's laid out like a baseball diamond. <laughs> and you see him running around the baseball diamonds because it all ties together. That's right, because here is where suddenly, for five minutes, Robin Williams comes alive, and suddenly he's doing stand-up, and he's motioning, <laughs> and he's just running around and doing voices. Uh, it is then- the most animated. I never even realized that that was the most animated. He was all movie. Yeah, yeah, that's and now that you say that he was improvising uh with the farts, I wonder how much he improvised with the Boston game too and you you need to you need to control Robin Williams you know, you need to to put him on a leash when you had him on on your movie otherwise he could have just <laughs> taken you anywhere. Dave said the idea that this Boston sports knowledge or, you know, nostalgia would apply all across all across the country or the world of people you know, watching this, I just imagine like someone in Dublin just, I don't give a fuck about this. Or even just someone like in Polka, West Virginia. Man, what, what the fuck does this have to do with him treating this kid? I don't get this. But, yeah, that's what people in West Virginia were thinking. <laughs> so I guess the joke's on us because Ben and Matt won an Oscar for ramrodding in World Series from 1975 knowledge about the Red Sox. Right, what do you um, know? Yeah, exactly. Well, they definitely did. They stuck with it here. The delineation becomes clear, the differentiation between uh, Professor Lambeau and Dr. McGuire's approach to Will. Um, it really seems like McGuire's trying to help him while Professor Lambeau is trying to mold him. He sees him as a prodigy that can be exploited for, you know, he's like, um, fuck. Todd Marinovich, Marv Marinovich's son. He's like, here's this ball of clay. I don't really give a fuck how this emotionally. <laughs> alters him i'm just gonna force him to be what i want him to be where mcguire clearly cares about him uh meanwhile but but i don't know alex because that's yeah that's what the movie's selling you but really i i think that the argument could and should be made that actually ben affleck does it later on in the movie (laughs) that the fact that matt damon is a genius kind of gives him a responsibility to do something with his life as many people know with great power comes great responsibility. And he he is really... Uh, it, it might be that Stellan Skarsgård is not the nicest person there, and he's kind of a dick, but he has a point. It's like, this guy could change the world the same way that Einstein changed the world, the same way that, uh, you know, I don't know, he lists a whole bunch of other scientists. <laughs> but it's good that, that Robin Williams is trying to heal him 
but that doesn't mean he has to encourage mediocrity. It rubbed me the wrong way that the movie decided to take a side when really they should have kind of tried to reach some sort of compromise. But instead they paint Stellan Skarsgård as being clearly in the wrong and Ruby Williams as being in the right. And that's not really fair to, to Matt Damon or who knows how many other youngsters out there that, that have the potential to do something with their lives. And then they watch this movie and they're like, you know what? What's really important is that I, I find that the right girl. That's really what matters. That is something I, I did come to realize watching this more recently versus when I was younger when I saw this. Because when I was younger, I was like, yeah, he is bad. He's trying to ruin his life. Don't make him do what he doesn't want to do. But really, he did have his best interests at heart. It was really just him trying to make sure he didn't throw his life away and he cared about him. I was like, that's kind of sad in a way. You know, like... I. What did, what did he say? He's like, I'm not twirling my mustache trying to figure out how I'm going to ruin this boy's life. I'm just in, a responsible parent. Swedish accent. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. They, they stack the deck against him, though, because the moment that you cast Robin Williams, then it, it automatically, the audience is going to side with him no matter what. And then it leads to this really unnecessary comedic bit, uh, even a comedic set piece with Ben Affleck goes and does one of the interviews for Will and... I don't know. I guess this was just, hey, Ben Affleck can be funny. It was kind of um, a for, foretelling of what would come with some of the scenes in uh, Armageddon. Ben Affleck goes to this job interview with these really hoity-toity aristocrat types and rips some dollars off of them. And it's very, very silly and very tonally inconsistent with the rest of the movie. It's Ben Affleck saying, hey, I wrote this too. Don't forget about me. <laughs> So all this mounting pressure eventually gets to Will and it just it breaks him because things are getting too real for him, be it with Skylar, who says, you know, I love you and she wants to take him to California with her. Uh, she's going to go to law school out there and she's really fallen for this guy and she wants to, you know, I want you to come with me. He can't take that. Um He's never left Boston to begin with, so the idea of leaving freaks him out, but then also the idea that this person loves him is also fucking with him. And then on top of that, the responsibilities that are coming along scholastically with what he's doing with Professor Lambeau, and he understands, or what he knows is that the work that's given to him is too easy, and I think he starts to feel like he's being taken advantage of, which, I mean, that's kind of left up to the viewer's interpretation of whether Professor Lambeau is taking advantage of him or not but he's fucking freaked out and he can't handle what's coming at him from any aspect of his life did you feel that skylar that mini driver came on to him too strong in that final scene where they kind of break up because they they just had sex at least it looks like they just had sex yeah, you, no they were just playing with an eight ball dude no, no, no after, it. after. Not, not the eight ball scene, which is really weird, by the way, because it's just like this sexy scene shot from in close-ups, but from above. I don't know, Gus Van Sand was smoking something. But uh, no, 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 later on, when they break up, because she, when she says, I love you and I want to take you to California, and and he kind of understandably says, uh, I don't know about that, because my life is here. But she takes such offense to him turning her down that then instantly gets, she goes on the offensive. And then, of course, he gets violent. He he gets he feels attacked, so he gets defensive and uh, starts screaming and showing her uh, his scars. And you know, it gets really ugly. But to me, it felt like she started talking like he owed her something when it was clear that this was kind of a fling. I mean, they knew that she was moving to California early on, so when 
she tries to make it something that's uh, more permanent and he reacts negatively. It's like, well, can you really blame him? In his mind, it was over whenever she moved <laughs> to California. Now you're springing this new setup on him. You need to give him some time to, you know, assimilate. You know, just she should have just gone like, hey, think about it. Yeah. <laughs> Don't get mad. It is. It's hard to know because, I mean, obviously no one expects that kind of reaction from a simple question. Right. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's justified, but uh, in, in simpler terms, yeah. I mean, like, she she threw him a curveball that he was not prepared for, if we bring it back to baseball terms. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I yes. mean, he's, his reaction is completely, you know, off the charts wrong. But yeah. I think that she... She made the wrong play to begin with because she she was expecting him to jump at the opportunity of going to California and then we and I guess she didn't have a backup plan for whenever he in case he said no which he did and then she just acted mad I don't know it it's also I think the movie's fault the filmmaker's fault the screenwriter's fault because I did not feel like their relationship was that serious throughout the movie I mean yes she meets his friends one one night you know but but then during this fight she's acting like they've been going on forever like they they have like a really long serious relationship and it's like why don't you love me and blah blah, blah. it's like it felt like an overreaction on both on both sides having been 20 21 before and remembering the fights i had with significant others at that point in time or relationships uh yeah he, you talk about really heavy things not realizing the weight of them at the same time, I think Minnie Driver's intentions were good, and then she was just met with comically over-exaggerated, overwrought negative emotion coming from Matt Damon. So I really just felt bad for Minnie Driver. I was like, man, I don't feel bad for Matt Damon anymore. Uh, and then he, <laughs> of course, the movie immediately is just like, ah, fuck Minnie Driver. She'll be sad on her own. Let's just see what happens with Matt Damon. <laughs> they really and- did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, that was her Oscar nomination, and then, boom, gone. Yeah, She's you never nice. see her again, right? He if calls you gave her, her a later, second scene, it. maybe. Like, <laughs> that was So, it. yeah, that, that was it. I guess it was to show the audience that, you know, the cracks are starting to show, and uh, McGuire's really starting to, whether or not Will knows it, he's starting to crack. And McGuire's getting to him more and more, little by little, piece by piece. It all culminates in Ben Affleck, who I do not believe was nominated for an Oscar for this movie. I would hope not. Uh, He was not. Of course, the Best Supporting Actor Oscar for this movie went to Robin Williams. But Ben Affleck gets, for all intents and purposes of this episode, his Oscar scene, where he just breaks down and just sets Will straight of like, listen, you prick. You're smart. We're not. If you think hanging out with us is going to do you any good, you're a fucking moron. And then he gives them that big. <laughs> I, I think this is kind of in the past five, maybe even 10 years, come back into resurgence where the character, the secondary character, explains the dream that they have that comes to fruition at the end of the movie, which was obviously <laughs> a, a big, big thing. Uh, at this, I mean, fucking, um, what's the Tim Robbins movie? Uh, Shawshank Redemption. Shawshank Redemption. Right. Yeah. You have a lot of prolific movies in the 90s that have similar uh, scenes that pay off like this, where he says, you know what the best part of my day is, is coming up to your door and, you know, maybe you won't be there and you finally would have fucking left us all, you cocksucker. <laughs> you know, Matt Damon, this like kind of the shame of the situation washes over him and he realizes you know what's going on ben affleck in that one scene accomplishes what robin williams <laughs> and still in had spent the entire movie trying to do 
It was the breaking point. It was the it was the the hair that broke the camel's back. You know, you had Chucky, his best friend, deliver the line because otherwise they'd be out there drinking beers, watching Patriots games every weekend. Man, <laughs> the Affleck the Affleck broke the camel's back. Yeah, whatever. I don't know expressions. <laughs> his session coming up with McGuire he gets there, and this is during like the Battle of the Titans, where Skarsgård and uh, Robin Williams are arguing. It's so obviously, you know. Um, Skarsgård's in the red jumpsuit. He's the devil over uh, Matt Damon's right shoulder, and then Robin Williams is in a white jumpsuit with the wings. He's the angel over the left shoulder. And the problem is Matt Damon kind of walks into this and sees that McGuire is the one that has his best intentions at heart. This, this, I would have to have to almost guarantee this is what they played at the 1998 Oscars for Matt Damon's scene of when. McGuire, Robin Williams keeps saying, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. He just keeps repeating this line over and over until it finally resonates. Yeah. (laughs) And it finally resonates with Matt Damon. And he, he doesn't just break down crying. We're talking like full on weeping. Uh, Oscar sobs, man. Oscar sobs. (laughs) Big old crocodile tears here. Did you feel that that was uh, uh, not necessarily satisfying, but more like a logical conclusion to this treatment. I mean, I understand that really, the, as far as procedure goes, Robin Williams's uh, approach to treating Matt Damon has kind of been all over the place. I mean, they talked a lot about Williams's dead wife. They've talked about baseball. They talked about farts. Uh, they talked a little bit about his relationship with Minnie Driver. I think that's the closest they got to talking about his own problems. And then now here, his final his final, I guess, blow is to talk about the the abuse that Matt Damon uh, has listed on his file. Um, and then that's enough to, to break him. It felt to me like this could have happened sooner, right? I mean, I'm assuming that, that Robin Williams had this file in his hands from the moment he took the case. He probably, that's all he needed, that and, you know, just repeating the same thing over and over. Apparently that, that was Matt Damon's... Uh, Achilles heel, uh, you know, you just show him the file and then you just go, it's not your fault. And you just repeat it for an hour until he breaks down. I I did not find it satisfying. I, I don't know about you, Alex, or you, David, if you felt that that, that made sense, that that tracked with, uh, with his treatment. I'll leave that to Alex since he just watched this for the first time. I feel like he'll have a more real opinion than I do. Um, so lay, lay it down for us, Alex. Yeah, I think it was, and also it was like the first time he chose to divulge that he had been abused also growing up. But like you said, Julio, I think it, uh, to kind of bleed over into real talk a little bit, it it was a fitting, it was a logical, but also a fitting conclusion of McGuire's way of saying, all right, well, yeah, fuck you. You never opened up to me, so I didn't open up to you. And <laughs> it, here's the cards that you know were dealt. And we could have been talking about this shit a lot sooner if you wanted to. Um, yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't call it satisfying. It was definitely a difficult uh, thing to watch, but we don't uh, like emotions around here. <laughs> no, it, it, it was, is hard to watch. I feel like almost anyone that'll be hard to watch, and it does feel justifiable. At least they made you feel like it was. I mean, it, they did. They acted the shit out of this. I'm gonna say, like, I mean, it, whether or not it made sense. They're saying it makes sense, and you're gonna believe it. <laughs> I think uh, I, I think definitely Robin Williams came to this movie 
with the mindset that he was going to win an Oscar. I don't think uh, uh, Damon and Affleck knew. They were just happy to be there. They were just happy to, to have the movie I don't know if Robin produced. Williams could have known that. It just seems weird because, I, I mean, just from the little research I did on this movie... Like they, I mean, it, they did portray this movie as this was written by two 25 year olds who live on each other's couches and they can barely pay rent. And Robin Williams is like, that's my movie. Like, <laughs> I don't know, man. Well, like, I, 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 but did you say that he made, he had just made Flubber like this year as well? <laughs> the same year, yeah. He was just looking for something that would distinguish him from just the shit that he'd been <laughs> putting out recently. It's like, can I have a role that is not about me clowning around? And then they, he gets this. It's like I can, I can work with this. I can take us, I can take us all the way to the Academy Awards, boys. Yep. And he I didn't delivered. think he said. He, I think he said, you know, I'd have to be stupid not to take this. But he was. I think you know the way I've learned about movies and how they get pitched to people. It seems like they go to stars a lot first and get their their sort of take on it. If you can get somebody to to join on, you can then pitch it to a, a production company or something. And I can just imagine they're just like, we got Rob Williams, yes. And then from there, you got all those other big names, and it, it rolled out. Um, I, I imagine they went to Skarsgård first. They were like, we got Stellan Skarsgård. And then Robin <laughs> Williams was like, all right, I'm in. So it, it took two hours, but Will finally gets it. He gets the whole idea of you know what the, the gravity, the weight of his knowledge holds and what his potential life can be. Uh, so he has the the farewell with Robin Williams. They exchange contact information. They exchange Twitter handles. He leaves, and it's his 21st birthday when uh, all the boys gift him a car. Uh, Chucky, Billy, and Morgan, they gift him this real hunk of shit, uh, but the, the idea is pure. And so they give him this car, and it's like, hey, now you can drive, and you because know, he's going to be going to the city for his new job that he got. Uh, but it turns He's out 21 that, therefore the best thing we can get you is a car yeah <laughs> oh wait no no you're legally able to drink now now you get a car that's that was the line there you go responsible so the idea being that he's going to take this into work every day turns out quickly when he has the means of transportation and after you know when he reflects upon the movie that he just took part in he realizes oh no what i should probably do is go after the girl so he goes to mcguire's residence and uh, McGuire at this point, you know, he's completed his what he perceives to be his duty as a counselor, and now he's going to travel the world and study more. But he gets a note in his mailbox that says, you know, if they ask about the job, tell him I'm sorry, but I have to uh, go see about a girl. And so the implied idea here is that he's going to drive out to California to meet back up with Skyler. And we get, you know, coming to fruition, Ben Affleck's best dream where he goes to the home of Will and Will is gone. And, you know, it makes him happy that he's gone. And my last note is (laughs) full circle. Exactly. My last note is LOL at that car making it across the country. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) We all thought that Elliot Smith playing on in the background. That was that was one of my two problems with the ending. One that, yeah, there's no way that that car makes it to California. Uh, Number two is. Why is Ben Affleck going to pick him up when he has a car already? I never realized that until this most recent watching. I was like, they just got a car. I guess to save gas, because technically they still work at the same place. That's the only thing I can think of. I guess, but they could have they could have had a, a line of dialogue with Ben Affleck. Because he says, that way I don't have to drive you around anymore, mm-hmm. right? When he gives him the car. And then Damon, he should have gone... Well, you still need to pick me up for work. We need to carpool to save gas. That's it. That fixes it. But because they didn't say that, when Affleck shows up, I'm like, what are you doing there? He has a car. He can drive himself to work. It's so true. 
Yeah. Oh, no, but, like, the best part is that fucking Casey Affleck's character doesn't even care that he's gone, nor does he ask where he is. He's just like, fuck yeah, I get to ride shotgun now. <laughs> Woo! Ben Affleck, I was, I was surprised that he took it so well, because I was, if I was him, I would have thought, okay, I know I told you that this was my dream, but I wasn't meaning literally, like, you should just leave town and not even say goodbye. He just left his best friends, the ones that, as described by Robin Williams, would have taken a bullet for him. He didn't care. He just went chasing tail all the way to California. Not even a goodbye. <laughs> I just Shame like how it. Ben Affleck just like nods like, he did it. The son of a bitch did it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and he just gets in the car, and you're right, but Casey Affleck, too. I'm sorry, but watching him run around to the front seat is so hilarious. Like he's Ha-ha. he's so happy. Yeah, he's just like, yeah, I did it. You cack sucker. <laughs> well, that was Goodwill Hunting. Indeed, it was. You, uh, you ready for real talk, Alex? Let's do it. I'm I'm excited to discuss this movie. Let me out. <laughs> you know, if you're gonna jerk off, why don't you just do it at home with a moist towel? You chucking me? Yeah, get the fuck hey, out. No, no, no. Time's not up yet. Yeah, it I'm is. not leaving, no. Listen, you're not going to answer my questions. You're wasting my fucking time. What? I thought we were friends. What do you mean you... Playtime's over, okay? Well, why are you kicking me out, Sean? I mean, what? I mean, you're lecturing me on life? Look at you, you fucking burnout. What winds your clock? Working with you. Where's your soulmate? You want to talk about soulmates? Where is she? Dead. That's right. She's fucking dead. She fucking dies. And you just cash in your chips and you walk away? Hey, at least I played a hand. Oh, and you played a hand and you lost. You lost a big fucking hand. And some people will lose a big hand like that and have the sack to ante up again. Look at me. What do you want to do? <laughs> you and your bullshit. You got a bullshit answer for everybody. But I ask you a very simple question and you can't give me a straight answer. Because you don't know. All right. I am recording for Real Talk. Goodwill Hunting. Again, released on December 5th of 1997. Directed by Gus Van Zandt. Written by Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. Budget of $10 million with a box office return of a bit over $220 million. $10 million uh, being humorous to reflect upon 23 years later. Get the idea of a movie with Robin Williams, Ben Affleck, Matt Damon would not, <clears throat> and Danny Elfman on the score, <laughs> no less, would cost you less than $20 million is humorous. And Casey Affleck, too. I mean, fuck's sakes, Casey Affleck's won an Oscar since this movie. At the 70th Academy Awards from 1998, as we mentioned, the first portion predominantly dominated by Titanic but Goodwill Hunting had its fair share of nominations, uh, getting nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, uh, winning Best Supporting Actor for uh, Robin Williams as Dr. Sean McGuire. Uh, Minnie Driver was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, and it won Best Original Screenplay by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. A fascinating year at the Academy Awards, as Titanic had almost a name in every category, except for... uh, the acting side of it, Leo didn't get nominated, which I think in the recent years that became kind of a joke was that movie got nominated for everything but him. And I mean, that was kind of an ongoing gag about how he never quite won. What what did he end up winning for? Why am I blanking on that? The Revenant? The Revenant. That, yeah. That's what he won. Yeah. Which uh, it's kind of like when uh, Scorsese won for The Departed. 
Probably not his best movie, but I'll take it. It's like a Lifetime Achievement Award type yeah. thing. Well, it's the same thing happened for the composer of, uh, what was it, that Tarantino movie? Uh, oh, darn. Oh, uh, uh, Ennio Morricone? Hateful Eight. Yeah, Ennio Morricone and Hateful Eight. They, he yes. barely did anything with that movie, and they were just like, take it. You deserve it. <laughs> we should have gave this to you 50 years ago. Here is your rightful award, sir. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously... Julio and I time and time again have come back to discussing Titanic on this podcast but uh, and our personal feelings on it. But one thing that cannot be uh, understated is the profound impact that movie had on – I you know, we want to say pop culture, but fuck, man. That movie – every once in a while, one of those movies comes out that literally like it takes over the world type thing is, you know, to be as dramatic as you can be about it. That movie just took the world by force. So – like I mentioned, the first portion, just from my childhood, I remember this movie being mentioned, but I didn't remember it coming out the same year as Titanic. I didn't remember it being around at that point in time, which understandably so, because everything else was overshadowed by that. Um, Robin Williams beat out Robert Forrester and Jackie Brown, Anthony Hopkins, and Amistad, Greg Kinnear in As Good As It Gets, and Burt Reynolds and Boogie Nights, while the screenplay beat out As Good As It Gets, Boogie Nights, Deconstructing Harry and the Full Monty. So, obviously, a movie that made an impact. And aside from the Academy Award nominations and victories, uh, I think it's fair to say that Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are household names in 2020. And uh, I think this movie is obviously a big part of that. Um, Might be the only reason for that, actually. Well, uh, I mean, Ben Affleck was in Reindeer Games, and that's a hell of a movie. But and Chasing uh, Amy, Chasing Amy, Did that and Two Hundred Cigarettes. Yeah, uh, it's just weird to think because he said that he was living on Matt Damon's couch, and they barely paid rent. So in my mind, I was like, "There's no way that he was a star at this time." Oh, I mean, Chasing Amy. It's not like he Chasing he, Amy. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a Kevin Smith movie that he made on that really low budget. So. I think we talked about that when we did that episode too, about how low budget it was. I can't even remember if it was a, I don't even remember if like the actors were paid for it type thing or like what we've come to know by that terminology. But yeah, I mean, Matt Damon is one of the biggest movie stars in the fucking world uh, and has been since this movie came out. And Ben Affleck too, you know, just because dog on Ben and he's made some questionable movies to put it pretty politely. You know, he had Dazed and Confused before this and I, I, I didn't do as much research for this movie because we have a guest on. Uh, I didn't want to, you know, bogard the time with, well, this is what I learned about the movie. But I would almost venture to guess Cole Hauser being in this movie, the man who played Billy, would have had something to do with the relationship from uh, Dazed and Confused that him and Ben Affleck had. I, again, I have no proof of that, but I would, I would guess. And then just to confirm, Chasing Amy was the same year as this. So Ben went from the highest of highs, the lowest of lows, and the creamy middles. He experienced it all in the year of 1997. So this was a guest pick. Um, so I want to get to the reason for that and uh, David's thoughts on the movie. But Julio, you did say you had some quotes for us. So what else were critics saying about Goodwill Hunting? Okay, so I got, like I said, the overwhelmingly positive quotes on Rotten Tomatoes really left me with one green splotch. There's one negative quote that I thought would be worth reading. And then there's a couple other uh, 
interesting ones are fresh. So the rotten one is from Christopher Knoll from filmcritic.com, who says, All told, the film has plenty of enjoyable moments, but it's just not the deep experience the filmmakers want you to believe it is. And before getting too much into real talk, I remember hearing this take. You know how you have the something takes over the world and then you get the backlash? And so I remember this being the narrative of the backlash when when everybody was raving about Goodwill Hunting. Eventually, uh, the equivalent of film Twitter came along and said, you know what, it's not as deep as you think it is. And I remember hearing that as a young person and going, well, maybe it isn't. They're right. <laughs> so uh, I look forward to discuss that because I haven't watched this movie in a long time. So obviously I have a much more updated take on it now. Uh, now, this one's fresh from Andrew O'Heher from Salon.com. And he says, Almost any viewer will enjoy Goodwill Hunting moment by moment, but many will wake the next morning wondering why. With all that talent on hand, it amounts to so little in the end. And that's a, <laughs> that's a positive one. <laughs> Uh, and then finally, this one I just found funny, and I'm sure it, it might set you off, Alex. I don't know. Uh, Bob McCabe from Empire Magazine says, Goodwill Hunting may well be the Rocky story of the 90s. Which I guess makes what? sense, because, you know, it was written by the actors and, and led them to success. Uh, but do you think yeah. the comparison holds? No. <laughs> I mean, no hesitation. No, they're both fine movies and i understand like the comparison that it's wanting to draw there uh but the stories are a bit different there's like there is no mcguire character in rocky and it's also rocky's not smart that's the whole anyway i'm not (laughs) and also aggressively stupid i would argue sly hadn't been in chasing amy yeah he's a fucking yeah he's a journeyman boxer anyway so i have thoughts on this movie many it was a a fun viewing experience considering it came very late my like i said i remember this movie coming out and if i remember correctly i remember my parents renting this and watching it in the living room and me and my sister weren't allowed to come in because that was still i wasn't really allowed to watch r-rated movies until like right around the time i turned 13 yeah, as has been documented on the podcast here. I think the Matrix, with the exception of T two, as we talked about, my dad showed me T two as a little kid because he's like, "This movie's so fucking awesome, I need to show my son this movie." That is exactly my experience. My dad did the exact same thing, but for the Matrix, it was. He's like, I remember my mom coming in and she's like, "Mike, you cannot be showing him this movie. He's thirteen. He's like, it's the Matrix, and and that was that. And I was allowed to watch movies after that. But yeah, I remember the VHS cover of Goodwill Hunting. I have kind of a it's not seared in my memory like some things from childhood when it comes to movies and VHS like I've talked about on here. It's not uh Friday the 13th or um what's the Nightmare on Elm Street I was talking about? The 5, the one with Freddy on the cover with the the stroller, the the dream child. That thing is burned into my brain. But this I remember having a faint memory of seeing the cover of this like my mom or dad or bring it home and like I guess I don't know me and my sister were supposed to play upstairs and keep ourselves busy while they had their little date night. So I have like a faint memory of it from my childhood, but this being the first time I viewed it, I don't know when I would have gotten around to seeing it. It, it seems like kind of a obviously an, an error in judgment 
have gone this long without seeing it, but the reason we watch this is our guest uh, today on The Contrarians, David, uh, wanted to bring this to the table. So that's I'm going to throw it over to you now. Why this movie? What's your relationship with it? And, you know, obviously you're a fan of it. I think that's why you brought it to the table. But just tell us how you feel about Goodwill Hunting, man. Jeez, get me out of these shackles you guys put me in. Holy shit. <laughs> God, trying to trying to bat you guys made it easy to badmouth it, I guess. I mean, I didn't realize how much, you know, following the steps of everyone in the tone, but you know, trying to to badmouth this movie was hard for me. And I hope I did a good job. Um <laughs> I love this movie and arguably top three movies for me. Um, you know, if we take Lord of the Rings off the table, this is pretty close. Um, oh, I, I first watched this movie, I want to say in early high school and being, you know, not only rambunctious, but I thought I was so analytical and deep, similar to what you were saying, Julio, a lot of people think it's deeper than it actually is. It might be, I mean, I don't know, (laughs) but it, it definitely made me feel like I was a super intelligent 15 year old and it, it just kind of stuck with me. And uh, I may, I think I, I like dramas in general, especially these, I don't know what you'd call them, some sort of middle drama uh, category, similar to Dead Poet Society, where it's it's not too hardcore drama, not too hardcore comedy, somewhere in the middle. Um, the reason I chose this was because, you know, I had to choose between either a, a movie that I really liked and I could look into the negative portions or a really bad movie that I had to to talk really good about. This is one where I was like, if I could watch this movie again and just do some more research, then I win automatically. So (laughs) I, I enjoyed just looking up stuff. I, I went on a tangent looking up stuff on this that I, I was looking up Elliot Smith. I learned an Elliot Smith song on guitar by doing research for this. Hell yeah. Is that uh, Miss Misery? I didn't learn Miss Misery. I think it was the bars in between or the bars between. Um, that was a lot simpler for me. <laughs> uh, Got to keep it simple. Um, but yeah, I think that is just a movie that stuck around with me. I watch it every every couple of years probably. And, I, you know, I, I don't know. That's about it as far as why I chose it. But it's it touches all the, the spaces that I feel like a lot of dramas don't go into. Um, it felt more real. There's something about the 90s. I don't know if you guys agree, but 90s movies feel more real to me than almost any other decade. Um, you know, there's something about... Interesting. The, the, it's not too heavy-handed on the cinematography. There's no filter, or not as many filters, I should say. I don't know if there are no filters, but it feels like it's just more raw in a lot of movies back then. And the fact that, you know, that two kids basically wrote this movie and got to experience living the roles for themselves. And obviously I'm a huge Robin Williams fan. Um, really, really tied it all together for me. So gosh, I, 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 I could go on forever about psychology that I'm interested in and the, the breakdown of how Will got where he was, but you know, I, it's kind of that underdog story. And I guess in a way that is kind of like Rocky. I mean, you have that, <laughs> The kid who has all the talents, but without the right people, doesn't know how to use it for the right purposes. And and I'm a huge Rocky fan, by the way. I mean, <laughs> it's, it is very hard to compare. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's up there as one of my favorite movies. Uh, I I would say, and I don't know if Alex would agree, but I would say that the '90s had a '90s filter. 
<laughs> all throughout. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay, that's fair. I mean, you can tell a 90s movie when you yep. see it. I, and that's, I love that's it. That's true. Um, I, I think there's some validity to what Dave said about... Um, I know I've interchanged Dave and David throughout this. I hope you don't prefer or mind one over the other, I don't, by the way. I don't okay. care at all. <laughs> all right. Uh, there is definitely a sheen that comes about with 90s movies, just like literally from an aesthetic standpoint. Like I've talked about mid-90s movies, how they all have like a VHS wash over them. But then also, like I understand kind of to a point of what he's saying, There's, I think it, each decade has an identity that it comes along with, with film. And uh, movies like this... Like it wasn't even into the 2000s that movies kind of started trickling off. We there's an episode we did on a movie called um, Shakespeare in Love. If you ever want to listen to me go off on when <laughs> film lost its soul, you can go <laughs> listen to that movie. But uh, yeah, it, there there is something to this that was lost in kind of an inexplicable fashion. Um, not to say that movies still weren't able to achieve genuine storytelling and emotion, but it it did seem like shortly after 97 98 even that uh the genuineness that comes along with this filmmaking process started to kind of taper off and like especially in the early 2000s there's so many fun movies in that time period but there seems to be just this like complete uh air of um, insincerity is a bit melodramatic i would say like um uh, overpolished overpolished and almost in a way just kind of made without too much seriousness which of course works for some movies and doesn't work for others but I, I i see what you're saying and i can kind of to a certain extent agree with that julio you had seen this movie previously uh i assume a couple times and um I, while i don't think it's rocky i think there's some validity to some of the things that you had said from those reviews you read um, but before I kind of launch into my talking point, we go from there, just kind of breaking down the movie. What are your, what was your overall experience with this movie and what are to this day, your overall thoughts on it? Yeah, see, I think it's, it's interesting because, uh, kind of touching back on the whole nineties thing again, I think that it's two elements that converge, right? One is movies in the nineties, nineties movies, but also when is it that you experience them? Because, where you were in the 90s, I think, shapes also how you experience 90s movies and also where you are when you experience them, if you experience them after the fact. So as far as me specifically, I actually watched this movie in theaters when it came out, but I don't remember it hitting me hard the way that obviously hit you, David. And I'm sure part of it has to be just age, right? You were much younger when you watched it. I was turning 18 when this movie came out. To me, it's associated with something completely different. I watched it in the United States on my first visit ever to the United States. To celebrate my 18th birthday, I came and visited my aunt and uncle in Miami. And I spent like two weeks with them. And they took me to the movies. Uh, we watched a whole bunch of movies. I was That was my first time ever in like a movie uh, theater in the United States. So to me, that supersedes everything else. The time that I watched Goodwill Hunting, specifically, they just dropped me off at this mall, <laughs> and uh, and I watched three movies. I watched Sphere, which sucks, Goodwill Hunting, and I don't remember the third one. But out of the three, I remember liking Goodwill Hunting the most. And I, I walked away, obviously, like I, I walked away not thinking, "Oh man, Robin Williams is going to get an Oscar 
on this, right? Or 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 thinking, oh, you know, where did those like guys, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, come from? I mean, to me, it was just like I just watched a movie. It was not uh, a marker of significance. Much later, when when the Oscars happened, like a couple months later, then it became, oh, that's the movie that gave Robin Williams his Oscar and the movie that you know, gave these two guys their Oscar for writing and whatever. But at the time, honestly, I think that the main thing for me was that it was a movie directed by Gus Van Sant, who I knew as a filmmaker that was kind of off the beaten path. I'd seen To Die For, which is a movie he did with Nicole Kidman uh, a few years earlier. And uh, I remember thinking that movie was kind of cool and dark and weird. And Good Will Hunting was nothing like it. And uh, I remember reading at the time just critics online that were saying that Goodwill Hunting was basically Gus Van Sant, not necessarily selling out, but really kind of toning down his own filmmaking vision uh, for the sake of just, you know, doing a more commercial movie. That is what Affleck and Damon had written. So, you know, it didn't have a big impact. And it wasn't until later on, whenever I rewatched the movie later, you know, years later, showing it to people that hadn't seen it, that I came to appreciate it as a showcase of uh, Robin Williams' range and learn to enjoy a little bit more the lore because obviously as years go by and Matt Damon and Ben Affleck become bigger stars, bigger figures, then there's, uh, I guess, an extra charm to seeing where they came from. Mm -hmm. And so I think the movie's good. I I think the movie's really good, actually. But then knowing, adding that extra bit of history, that it's like, this is where they came from, pretty much, uh, adds a little bit of extra enjoyment to it. And honestly, this time that I just I just rewatched it for the first time in maybe I don't know ten years, and I got the most out of it. I really really connected with it. There was there was some stuff that that hit me really hard, and I was also anticipating the discussion because knowing that it was one of your favorite movies, David, and knowing that Alex had never seen it, I was like, how are they experiencing it right now? Uh, Is this a wild range, isn't it? Like Mm -hmm. someone who's never seen it, someone who loves it and seen it a lot, and somebody who's in between. It's really something. Yeah, yeah. I can say that I came out of it liking it a lot more than I've liked it in all my previous uh, watches Uh, and really coming away from it with an understanding and also with a... uh, I feel very confident now knowing that at least... As far as I'm concerned, the criticism that this movie is not as it, as deep as it thinks it is, is kind of uh, not necessarily unfounded, but kind of uh, malicious, you know, because you're, I think you're assigning pretension to a movie when I don't think it's there. And I could be wrong. I don't know, Alex. How, I, I, I'm sure David doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't think it's pretentious. But do you feel, Alex, that th- this movie is... Gus Van Sant, Matt Damon, and Ben Affleck being pretentious, like ex- expecting this to be like the deepest world-changing movie uh, that they could ever make. Uh, Julio, you and I have done so many movies for this podcast that think they are way more important and deep than they are. And uh, we've talked about before on episodes of this about how this podcast has kind of uh i wouldn't say altered our palette but made us understand when you're watching something genuine versus not and we have covered a lot of things that think they are more important than they are or think they're saying something more than they are and we've disagreed on some things saying more than they are both on air and off um so watching something like this I think this movie said exactly what it wanted to, and I think it succeeded in it. 
it never really tried to overstep. I think, honestly, it was this movie that didn't really try to say more than, hey, there was this one guy who was really smart but was just kind of slumming it up with white trash and then went through this series of crimes and situations in the life that put him into this situation where this in particular counselor came and actually got through to him. You know, it's not a movie that tries to say much more than that. It doesn't, in my opinion, it doesn't try to comment on the state of things overall. It just tries to tell this one individual story about these two people that through happenstance came together in the life and kind of helped each other out in a certain way. Um, Real quick, before I go further, I want to not admonish, but more, I guess, admire uh, our guest David for uh, when I was 15, the the deep movies that you know I clung to were Boondock Saints and Natural Born Killers. So you are a much better man than I am, and you had a much uh, much more sophisticated uh, movie to cling to than I did. Because that, oh, trust me, I had mine too. But this is just one of those weird ones that snuck by. I'm just I'm not going <laughs> to let the audience know though the other one I watched. <laughs> No, when you were saying that, though, I could immediately relate to what you were saying to as a movie you saw when you were younger. And that's um, way back in the day when we, I think it was our fifth episode. We did Empire Records and I talked about that it was a movie at like a certain age I clung to. And that's why I kind of have this um, ingratiated opinion of it today. And so when you were explaining at 15 and the age you are then and what you're looking for and what you think is intellect and all that. And uh, so I had those. And I understand what you're saying. And. This one, I think, holds up, though. Um, when this movie was over, again, this is my first viewing of it, I kept thinking about Walk the Line um, because that's a movie that uh, is similar to this. Now, I saw Walk the Line in the theater. I own it. I've seen that movie fucking 10 times, maybe 15. Watching Walk the Line now is it's hard not to f- be comedic about it. And it's hard not to jest about the like the tones and themes and bits of that beats, excuse me, of that movie, because things like Walk Hard have come out, and because the style of comedy, the Apatow franchises and whatnot have kind of made a point to jest about how over the top and melodramatic those things are. Much like for the you know decade prior, there were movies doing that about Goodwill Hunting. I'm tying these together here. Just just follow me, kids. <laughs> um, Walk the Line and Goodwill Hunting, it, it, coming off this experience of watching it for the first time, both fall into the category of, yes, it is incredibly easy to parody them and joke about how silly some of the scenes, situations, and scenarios are in the movie and how some of the things are treated with a sense of melodrama that's almost comedic to kind of go back to that, but it's pulled off much like walk the line. In my opinion, this movie pulls off all of the things that have been parodied for decades since. And, you know, kind of pointed at and jested about of like, Oh, this one counselor is able to get through to this guy. I mean, this, to be honest, much like walk the line, wasn't the first biopic. Uh, Goodwill Hunting was not the first picture like this. Like there was Stand to Deliver, and there were especially in the '90s, there were a lot of movies about like the rags to riches story of the the kid who didn't want it type thing. So, my compliment to the movie is that it hits all these remarkably cliched bits, 
but still succeeds for me in every aspect that it wants to. And much like Walk the Line when it was over, it was like, God damn, that was a, a good movie, well acted, and achieved what it wanted to. And I say that watching – I watched Goodwill Hunting 23 years later – or 23 years after the fact and just as jaded as I could be when it comes to movies. And I still was just like – even watching it through the contrarian's lens of me trying to pick apart the story and find what's wrong with it while it's going on, I still – like Matt Damon was fantastic. Robin Williams is fantastic. It really made me miss him. Like mm -hmm. it, obviously I never knew him as a person, but just watching this and that's something people of our age range, I know there's differentiations in our age, but I think the three of us can agree that Robin Williams always brought like this comforting presence on screen that mm -hmm. not many people of our lifetimes has. And so kind of visiting something like this made me like miss him. I was like, fuck, yeah. I, I wish we had something like this again, but yeah. yeah, I, I came away from this. I kind of expected it to be great, but it was and that in and of itself made me happy. <laughs> I wonder if, uh, if part of the, that backlash is just, that the industry or movies in general set an expectation for a level of complexity if you're dealing with with this sort of story, or at least at the very least, if it becomes an award-winning story, then you automatically expect it to have a level of complexity that the story doesn't have in this case. But that's not a bad thing. I think that it's more this aims more towards being a fairy tale, right? It and and that's fine. I mean I can enjoy it as such. I think that it's it it works great. It's not really a, a, a deep dive into the psychological profile of Will Hunting. That's not what this movie is trying to do, but to resent it because it's not doing that, I think it's it's a little, it, it kind of misses the point, you know? But you're talking about being jaded, Alex, and I think that some people could just basically reject the premise, rather the presentation of Goodwill Hunting based on the premise, right? If you're like, oh, well, I thought we were going to go into like a really uh, meticulous analysis and understanding of a troubled youth well no that's not what this movie is this movie is like you said a rags to riches story this is the, the story about the uh, the boy genius that couldn't get out of his own way and and the understanding psychologist that helps him find his way but it's a it's a lot simpler than i feel like most people expect you're right mm -hmm. it's it's not a complicated story it's not hard to follow and it, it, David Fincher isn't directing it. It's not. You're not gonna. You're not gonna find details you didn't expect to find. I think maybe it makes people look more internally, if anything, and maybe that's why I gravitated towards it. I think that there's something about the raw emotion in some of those scenes that it really does make you look inside yourself and and think, where is this coming from? You know, why am I this angry for no reason? I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm being too pretentious right now, looking back on it. But um, that's how I feel about it. It's also hilarious that people were clamoring for more substance in their movies. The year Titanic won <laughs> the Best Picture, <laughs> which again, love Titanic, but to act like there's substance to that movie is preposterous. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to remember my original reaction to will himself because watching it now when you see matt damon walk on the screen you know not just matt damon but also ben affleck uh the the history of them as actors makes you like them right away but this was i'm pretty sure this was my first movie from both of them I'm pretty sure this was my first damon movie my first affleck movie and matt damon he is 
so uh, cocky throughout the movie and so just difficult that I remember I remember clearly siding with Robin Williams a lot and just being infuriated, like frustrated by just how this fucking kid, you know, keeps trying to get under his skin and he won't do what he stole and all that stuff. But uh, I don't think that it was enough to turn me away from the movie. But I could definitely see that as kind of a um, deterrent, a deter- like a risk, right? Because when they're making the movie, Matt Damon is not Matt Damon. So people could have just not taken it. Be like, who the fuck is this guy? Why is he talking to Robin Williams this way? <laughs> I'm done with this movie. <laughs> He's a national treasure. Right. But but I, I, I remember, I think that I never really stopped rooting for him. Right. And, and there is like th- that scene where he breaks up with, uh, with Minnie Driver. It's, it, it gets pretty brutal. And that's, I think, if you get an actor that doesn't calibrate uh, just at the right, you know, the right level, that's it the moment where you just, you turn off. You're like, oh, I don't mm-hmm. care. He he almost punched her. I'm done. <laughs> I honestly thought he was going to, like, punch the wall. I've, I've seen it so many times now, but every time, like, he's going to punch the wall, isn't he? He's going to, like, break his hand through that wall. <laughs> yeah. What was your reaction to that, Alex? Because it, it felt even in Contreras' corner that that, that scene... Uh, just kind of hit you hit you hard uh yeah i mean yeah it was like i kind of said i never i probably did hit a wall but like just (laughs) i'm not trying to make myself seem like the will hunting character because obviously i i don't come from a situation like that of abuse or anything but i can relate to being young and dumb and not opening yourself up to someone out of fear of uh, you know inadequacy or what have you so that scene kind of it, it hit me hard just in terms of like watching him and uh, you know watching a movie and investing in this character and like fuck man you got this good girl in front of you and you should you should go with this and go for it and see where it takes you and just being able to get out of your uh, not being able to get out of your own way was something i could relate to so that 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 scene did hit me particularly hard and it made me uh, remorseful for the the will character which obviously i think is the point of the movie but yeah it was uh it was intense when he hit the wall it wasn't quite like um Ever since Revolutionary Road, I think a lot of movies are just kind of competing for that moment of shock for me. That moment where Leo cocked back and went to hit Kate Winslet and then pulled back at the last second. It's been a while since I've like gasped as loud at something like that about to happen in a movie. So unfortunately, Goodwill Hunting didn't live up to that level. But still, I was just like, fuck, I just felt bad for the Will character. Yeah, I definitely feel that I felt that way this time around. I think that maybe originally I was more put off by it, but not to the point where I would turn on the movie. Uh, but that reminds me actually of the biggest thing, and we kind of alluded to real quick. I just want to—I don't want to seem overly mask like phallocentric. Obviously, in that scene, I feel most bad for the mini driver character because she's a good person trying to do the right thing. (laughs) But as someone who can relate to the situation, I feel for the Will character. I don't want to be like one of those people like, oh, yeah, that girl did everything wrong. She could have she could have tamed him. But well, hopefully it speaks to a lot of people on a lot of different levels, because I feel like a lot of people can can see themselves in both scenarios. I mean, there's a lot of people who've probably been on the other end of that. Yeah, right. You say you say the one thing that sets the other person off. (laughs) Yeah. But no, what I was going to say is the the Stellan Skarsgård character. How do you feel about his role in the movie and whether he is unfairly portrayed as sort of a villain as the movie goes on? 
because I think that's the other thing that kind of bothered me all the way back then in 98. And it doesn't bother me now. I've kind of come to terms with how his story goes. But it's still kind of a, a, I guess, I could see the criticism, right? Of, you know, he is still trying to do what's best for Will. And there has to be a middle ground between being healthy and, you know, pursuing your dreams, but also maybe, uh, I don't know, fulfilling the debt you have to to the greater world, to, to society, mm-hmm. you know, is it, I understand that's a very personal thing. I, I obviously, if, if you believe that you have no responsibility to use your gifts, whatever they are to make the world a better place, then, you know, obviously that's, that's how, that's what you believe. But I, I guess having grown up with the indoctrination that that's the right thing to do, that if you have uh <laughs> you know, power, so to speak, it must be wielded uh, for the good of society. I could totally see uh, Stellan Skarsgård's point, and uh, and I felt that the movie let Robin Williams be too clearly on the right side. It's like you can't hate on Robin Williams. Well, He's just it was it was right. more tonally right because in the end, if you really think about it, Chucky. Ben Affleck's character sides with Stellan Skarsgård's character. You know, that's he's true. the one who says, you know, if you're here 20 years from now, I'll fucking kill you. Like, that's a fact. <laughs> and and so he's siding with Skarsgård saying, like, it is beyond you. You know, like, you should do this for us. And maybe that's the slight difference. You know, it's not about you. It's about us. You know, do it for me kind of thing. And but then so you're like, OK, so now you have two people on this side it's helping paint Scar's Garden a little bit better light because he's not the only one. And you think he's going to go for the job. I'm like, okay, he's come full circle and he's doing what he wants to do. But then he kind of goes exactly in Sean's direction immediately at the very last moment. He's like, oh, I'm going to chase after a girl. <laughs> you know? So you Which, get a little bit of all of it. Yeah, I think that I guess what what is missing for me, and this is a very particular thing. I'm curious to see how Alex feels. But I wish that Will had had one final moment with Stellan Skarsgård where they mm. found some sort of, where they found that compromise because you never really see him again. The last thing yeah. that, that happens is you see him, uh, he walks in on the two of them, on, on Williams and Skarsgård, just having it out. And it's just a really ugly moment. And that's the last time you see them on screen together. After that, I guess you can assume that they had a conversation because he took a job that Skarsgård put out but as a viewer i kind of wanted that reassurance that everything was okay with everybody <laughs> we get it between Skarsgård and williams that's that two percent right? that's the two percent that it lost if it wanted that hundred <laughs> percent you're right though honestly i never thought about that but it's so true i i would have loved an actual scene like that what, what do you think alex uh i mean my main takeaway from Stellan Skarsgård in this was like i really wish there someone would make like a diehard type movie with him as the bad guy because he, he seems like so he's teetering right on being comedic bad guy in this movie. Like I, I think there's, it, it's almost like um, obviously he's such a talented actor, but there were certain portions of this where I felt like he was the bad guy from like a, a Disney home video movie that I watched when I was a little kid, like blank check or something like that. Like it felt like he could have been the bad guy from, you know, trying to make sure the puppy pound doesn't get its money or anything like that. Um, (laughs) So the main, I guess if I had a main critique, like there were obviously the scenes where Matt Damon had the one-on-ones with um, 
Lambeau, Stellan Sarsgaard, and then obviously the ones with uh, Robin Williams. But I, I guess it was maybe by design or maybe just to keep the movie right at two hours, the idea that like you never saw him really reflecting upon what path he thought was right. Like I understand like he blew off all these job interviews and you know, he, he flat out told uh, Lambo, this shit is too easy for me, but you, I, I don't know. Like at the end, like I joked about in contrarian's corner where it seemed like the scene where he had the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other. Um, aside from the fact that the audience knew that Robin Williams was in the right, it didn't seem like, his internal struggle was broadcasted enough. But again, I, I think that was just the point of the movie. I thought for the role it required, Skarsgård was great. And that's ha- having experienced some of that in real time. I, I had a professor in college of, um, it really felt like, you know, he never, it was like a, a race he couldn't finish or like an unobtainable goal that his, career's work wouldn't be done until he found this protege type thing and he kind of pushed people in his class a bit harder to try to achieve that so I could relate to that and it's a very for people in that situation it's a realistic character but I I still think there were some like twinges of Hollywood added to it this boy is at a fragile point right now I do understand he is at a fragile point okay he's got problems well what problems does he have Sean that he's better off as a janitor that he's better off in jail better off hanging out with a bunch of retarded gorillas oh why do you think he does that Jerry do you have any fucking clue why hmm he can handle the problems he can handle the work and he obviously handled you earlier I don't remember if we're recording yet or not but I I mentioned that oh yeah we were uh, I mentioned that I secluded myself with my, uh, I guess, my sort of guest room slash office, just in case that the the tears came. And they didn't, but I did. The scene that surprised me by how much it affected me, I, I did tear up a little bit, was the the big Ben Affleck moment, which, in my recollection, I, you know, I thought of Ben Affleck as the most comedic out of all the elements in the movie. I, What I remember was that he was there purely for comic relief, and uh, I remember that he had his one moment with with Will at the end, but I didn't realize, I didn't remember that it was this, I don't know. I, to me, it was very powerful this time around. And I don't know what it was uh, exactly. It left me thinking, really made me wonder why it had hit me so hard now when it hadn't before. But I, I don't know if it was just the idea that, I guess just the raw honesty of just letting his friend know that... <laughs> uh, I guess acknowledging that he knew what his station in life was and he was just resigned to it, but that he would resent his friend if he didn't make more out of himself. And I guess that lines up with just the fact that I kind of felt that that uh, Stellan Skarsgård had a point, right? That that Will needed to do something with his life. Uh, but I don't know, that, that Affleck moment, he's been such a such a joker the entire movie and to see him suddenly be serious for like three minutes and deliver that monologue and then just kind of move on was uh that was pretty effective uh, i don't know how how did you how do you guys feel about ben affleck in this movie because he, he doesn't really get much to do it like like we kind of joked it's like he's ben affleck except for that one moment where he he gets a monologue well we did get to see him also pretend to be will at one point you know for comic <laughs> relief of course <laughs> Um, but I think he just balances him. I, and maybe that's the 
the nature of being two best friends beforehand. They have natural chemistry together, but everything they did felt real. You know, I feel like anyone else, it would have felt good, but there's something about how he helped Matt, or I should call him Will, um, get where he needs to go. You know, like as subtle as it may be, I think that it was necessary. Yeah, I think um, it's so hard not to get swept up. And again, this is a big part of me watching this movie in 2020 as opposed to uh, back when it came out. But it's so hard not to get swept up and park the car in the Harvard Yard and just think about like the, (laughs) you know, I'm not a co-op. And the things these guys did in their career, obviously Matt Damon, the departed and um, Ben Affleck, like every time he's on SNL, the joke is he's from Boston. Like, you know, (laughs) it's hard not to like get, like I said, swept up in that, but this movie's so good that it kind of sucks you out of it. And um, I think Ben was still trying to kind of find his footing as an actor at this point. Like he wasn't really sure what he wanted to be. Whereas Matt Damon's to me, just like an eclectic character. And I'm not criticizing Ben Affleck. He has more money than I will ever dream of having in my life, but it's, I think just from the movies we've done with him in it and the things I've seen of him, he was still kind of uh, fresh to the industry and kind of finding, like I said, his footing. But that one monologue he has or his big speech where it's like, I'll fucking kill you if you're still here. That That's fucking awesome. And it's believable. And I think kind of to what some of David was talking about, it's so buyable as a viewer because they are friends and it feels like the way they're reacting to each other is completely genuine. Yeah, do you remember hearing uh, at the time, I don't know if either of you did, that their original plan was that they would, uh, the follow-up to Goodwill Hunting will be another movie written by the two of them, but this time Ben Affleck was going to be the main character and Matt Damon would have been the the supporting character. And then, of course, that never came to pass because, I guess, they both became big enough stars that they didn't need to do anything. You know, they just, <laughs> they had projects thrown at them. Uh but I always thought that that was interesting. I wonder if if Goodwill Hunting had been enough of a success that they could keep going, but not not that big a success that they suddenly became booked and they couldn't keep working together. Uh, I wonder what would have happened. I mean, I think that Affleck has developed a pretty interesting career off, you know, behind the camera as well as in front of the camera. So to, to see what else he would have done that early on is, is interesting. I mean, we didn't get to see him direct until like I don't know how many years later. But in between uh, this movie and Gone Baby Gone, there's just like so much, you know, not to sound like so much Hollywood bullshit. <laughs> you know, it's and- so weird to think of a time when Matt Damon wasn't one of the top A-list actors in the world. Like that's that's what's kind of funny about watching this, and Ben Affleck too. But it's like for the better part of my life, Matt Damon has been one of the most prolific prominent actors in the fucking world yep. so that was kind of funny watching this of like oh yeah he was you know this was kind of the thing that did it and uh yeah i i mean it makes sense they both have such um individualistic looks like they they have very um interesting looks about both of them so i could see why this just kind of teed them off or uh, wide them off I should say in different directions but I guess it would be funny to think about if there was like four or five other movies they wrote together before they actually took off and what the hell they would have been about <laughs> just 
Well, now uh, Dr. McGuire is a golfer, and he needs uh, Will to be his caddy. I don't know what the hell it's they've written about. Caddyshack 3. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, we do have somebody from, from a podcast about franchises here. It was like, can you envision the Goodwill Hunting franchise, David? It is one of those ones where I... I mean, I guess did it you were kind of talking about how they were planning on something after this, but was it actually going to be a sequel or was it going to be just a plan for them to write another movie for them to be a part of? I I would like to think because they've never released anything as far as information, but I would like to think that it was just basically a different movie. Uh yeah. But I I mean, I still think that yeah, maybe it's not that you make a, you know, let's not talk about a sequel to Goodwill Hunting because I don't even know where you go from there. But, <laughs> exactly. But, but just the idea of a, a, a Damon slash Affleck universe where they, yeah. you know, before they hit it big, they make like three or four or five indie movies <laughs> that are just written by them, for them, and their friends. And you have, you know, the recurring actors. You have Casey Affleck and all of them. You have Ben Affleck and all of them, Matt Damon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I could be like a Tarantino-style universe where you have the same repeating characters that kind of cycle in and out. But yeah, I mean, something we talk about on our podcast is that every movie wants a sequel. I mean, if you're going to make a movie, if you make enough money and somebody asks you to make a sequel, I mean, it's it's almost guaranteed. And this is one of those movies where I am stuck in between because it maybe it maybe this is why it didn't get a sequel. It doesn't seem like it has a place to go. Like there it told its story and it would be really hard to tie it all back together again. Um but it made so much money that I I would not be surprised if somebody behind the scenes is like we got to we got to write something, Matt, like get on that. But I don't know. I I'd, I'd have to do some more research on that to to know if that would work for us, but it would be a will coming back to Boston to attend uh, Dr. McGuire's funeral. And that's where he reconnects with everybody. Oh. <laughs> Ooh, that would be something. And then he has a, a child with with uh, Winona Ryder. With Winona Mini, Ryder. <laughs> sorry, Mini Driver, sorry. Um, <laughs> I was thinking well, about Julio y'all. wouldn't reject Winona Ryder coming in anyway. So. I mean, if she, if she wants to show up as, as uh, Ben Affleck's wife in the sequel, then... Mm. Yeah. Then their kids get to grow up together and live happily ever after. There you go. Write it, David. We'll get it produced. I'm on it. And then I'm going to make Will's son even smarter than him. (laughs) (laughs) My boy's wicked smart. Well, I can kind of guess what David's rating is going to be. But how do you... You do 1 to 10, right, on your show? Yes, we do. Okay. So is is this a 10 out of 10 for you, David? This is a 10 out of 10. And I don't give very many 10 out of 10s, ironically, in our episodes. I'm probably the the bottom of the barrel when it comes to giving out 10s. But I picked the one movie I knew would make me give it a 10. So, yeah. Uh, how about you, Alex? Fascinating. This is We're doing three different rating skills here. Yep. We're doing on uh, 1 to 10, an A, B, C, D, uh, F scale, and then Julio does the five-star treatment. So um, I'm going to go with a... Mm, I'm going to say a B plus, but I think I'll just go with an A, just a dead center A. Because the power of Williams. Yeah, there's really not too much like I can say to disparage it because at no point does it try to become more than it is. And that's uh Yeah, it's just that. It's an A. Yep. It so accomplished it, what it wanted to accomplish. And this is something we have issues with when we talk to each other about our ratings because 
when a movie goes out to do something, and whether or not it's a spectacular sun, if they did what they came to achieve, it's really hard to downplay, regardless of whether or not it's like the best movie ever, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I think that's something always to keep in mind. To me, always, I, I found over the past few years what ultimately leads the way when I decide on a on a rating is how the movie made me feel. And that's ultimately, that trumps how uh, complex it might have been or how innovative or whatever. In the end, it's just like, how did I feel? And a very simple story could make me feel you know, elicit really strong emotions. And so that's really where I, what I lean towards. Uh, in this case, I'm upgrading. I, I, I think I had it at four stars before, and now I'm giving it an extra half a star. So I'm going to 4.5 stars uh, because that fucking Ben Affleck scene was just came out <laughs> of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, you know, because I knew the, the, the scenes with Robin Williams were going to be emotional and I was, I was prepared for those and they were really, really good. And, I really like uh, Stellan Skarsgård, you know, independently of how I feel that the movie treats him. I think that what he's doing, he's playing a very interesting character. And uh, so I find that aspect fascinating. Uh, but then, yeah, the, the fact that they bring it home with that Affleck scene, it's just, uh, yeah, 4.5. So I think overall, uh, 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 that's almost, uh, that's basically uniform agreement. Decent the, movie. Yeah. It's a good movie. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Recommend. I will end you. I will fucking end you. All right. Winding down here, David, we greatly appreciate you bringing this movie into Contrarian's canon and bringing this into our, uh, uh, I, I guess it's in our filmography, so to speak now, and something that will be of Contrarian's lore for hopefully years to come. So thank you for bringing Goodwill Hunting into the fold. Uh, thank you for being on the podcast. But let's get back to the the matter at hand. Franchise Killer, where can we find y'all? <laughs> thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure being on here. Um, Franchise Killer, we're, we're pretty much wherever you can find podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, uh, any other ones you could probably think of. We're more likely on it. Um, yeah, I mean, we would love to have some new listeners. If you like listening to people break down movies uh, and see where they went wrong or right, we're right down your alley. So you're in the middle of, uh, of your, I guess, dragon movies arc, right? Yeah. I know you did Aragon. Like we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. you're the last one uh, I saw that I downloaded. It was a uh, rain that, of fire. Yes. I was saying that Christian Bale movie. Uh, My Ted loves that movie. <laughs> really it's it's a very underrated movie i don't know if you listen to our podcast but that movie i i feel will surprise you if you haven't seen it so so do you have dragon movies uh on the queue through the rest of 2020 or do you <laughs> know what funny you're because next? these came out of nowhere for even us i mean re- real talk we like we had a whole plan of movies and somehow we had a friend come into town and he really wanted to do an episode with us. We're like, sure, we'll do Aragon. He he likes it. He read it. So we did that. And they we're like, it'd be really silly if we just did one random dragon movie between Die Hard and vampire movies. <laughs> you know, like it's just a very weird thing. So we're like, yeah, let's throw in a couple other dragon movies just to kind of tie it all together. So we ended up with Reign of Fire. Tomorrow we drop uh, Dragon Heart. So with Sean Connery, which yeah. felt appropriate considering he just died. Um, so that's, uh, you know, our homage. And then we jump straight into Die Hard for Christmas. So you're doing all the Die Hards. Yep. <sighs> we did Die yeah. Hard uh, 5. 
way back in the early days of the show, and uh, I do not envy that revisit. Uh, it's it's one of those things where whenever we have really long franchises, regardless of whether or not I like all of them, pirates being one of those kind of things, it's it's a journey. It's maybe there are people out there who just really want to hear the whole story start to finish, Die Hard one to five. I really hope they do, but it's it's difficult. <laughs> well, good luck, good luck with that. All right, so wrapping up here, Julio uh, for our Patreon subscribers. Uh, on my end, we're going to be talking about uh, the Otherworlds Film Festival that just took place over the weekend. I'm going to be talking about a movie I watched from there. Uh, yourself? Uh, likewise, I I watched a whole bunch of Otherworlds movies uh, this past week. So uh, I'll be talking mainly about Paradox Lost, which is uh, probably the most memorable out of all of them. Uh, I liked it a lot. So uh, it's sci-fi as you would expect but also uh, i kind of want to throw my hat in the controversy ring of a uh, happiest season which is uh the latest hulu holiday release uh starring mm. Kristen stewart and uh mackenzie davis yeah i watched that movie and i liked it uh most people seem to like it they have some issues with it so uh, i'll tell you about it and see if i can convince you to watch it alex along with uh just all the other other world releases that i that i watch all right, that is for our Patreon listeners and subscribers. David, thank you once again. Everyone check out Franchise Killer. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you on, and we really appreciate you, again, bringing uh, Goodwill Hunting into the fold. Thank you guys very much, and good luck. All right, so as always, perennial plugs. We want to give a shout-out to the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks. They kick us off with Last Stand. Take us home with Summer of 99. Head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Our friend Hans Rothgieser, a fellow podcaster, uh, he is the man behind our logo. He did everything that you see as far as graphics on our Patreon, on our uh, regular page, and on our upcoming merch. If you want to see more of his work, check out his website, mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S dot P-E. He is an author. He's written a whole bunch of zombie novels that are listed there. And he has four podcasts, three of them in Spanish that you can find on any podcatcher, Nación Combi, which is about Peruvian current affairs, Contante y Sonante, and Marginal are about economy because he's also an economist. And then he has a podcast in English called Living in Peru that's on iVox, and that's about immigrants to Peru. Just check out his work. Uh, tell him the contrarian sent you. And lastly, as always, as has become tradition, I guess as is the new the new normal, the phrase we've become accustomed to in this godforsaken year. Zoe Perez, thank you, m'lady, uh, for what you do for our social media game, uh, our Instagram account, making all those pretty graphics and interactive posts for people, uh, fans of ours, followers, what have you. Uh, Zoe, we appreciate the work you do for us. So that wraps it up. Uh, if you're like myself and one of the only remaining humans that hasn't seen Goodwill Hunting, be sure to do so. You can get it for $2.99 on YouTube, and the transfer is very good. Go for it. On deck is Howard the Duck, which, my God, I am morbidly curious about covering. Leah Thompson, hell yeah. I can I can always get down with some of that in my life. Uh, our buddy Sam from Movie Reviews and 20 Qs is going to be joining us for it. Uh, have we recorded with him since The Muppets? Uh, no, no. It's like we visited his show for The Muppets, and now he's he's paying us back. Well, I mean, it, it, I mean, he's. 
I wouldn't even say winning. I mean, we did The Muppets, which fucking rules, and now Howard the Duck, which is widely regarded as one of the worst movies of all time. So we'll see how it goes. But Sam will be joining us on our next episode for Howard the Duck. Uh, in the, the meantime, in the interim, before we reach that point, though, uh, this has been The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. Yeah.